the main kind of gateway of George and the Dragon comes through the Golden Legend, which is a text written in the 1260s. And this is how it becomes kind of introduced into Western Europe and ties in quite nicely with a lot of the romance literature going around at the time of you know various knights on quests and so on. And we'll get into some of that. But I, I wanted to so you know that that's where the story really comes from in its most famous version. And I think in the, the 16th century as well, it was one of the first texts that was uh, printed. Mm. So it's one of the first texts to have kind of mass uh, um, dissemination in mm. in that period <clears throat> as well. So uh, that kind of helps to embed St. George as a, a popular figure or an accessible mm. figure. But gentlemen, there are many influences, and I know you all have various thoughts on the influences of this story or comparisons and so on. So I just want to open it up to you guys about yeah. the, his the history of it. Yeah, the, the thing I found just off straight off the back of what you mentioned with mm. the, the Golden Legend one is that I found uh, the, the earliest sources this, uh, of that particular story is one in Georgia, I think, which is 11th century. But what I found about so interesting about that is that there's no spearing of, of the dragon, right? There's no spearing of it. So, that, so he prays to God to do it. So you can see here perhaps the interaction of when it moves over into Italy, which was taken over by the Goths, right? We know that uh, that's at that point. So there was a push down, right? It's not the, exactly the same population as it was in Roman classical days, right? So what happens is when you get to that golden uh, text is that he is a spearing the dragon. So there's a big difference between that. One is a dragon slayer and one who is a person who goes there, prays to God to remove the dragon, right? Like, and there is a source. I can't remember if it is, um, I can't remember if it's Spengler. I think it might be Spengler who says that the Semitic dragon slaying is God slays it. The Indo-European and the or Hyperborean version is it's the individual hero that does it, that slays a dragon. So perhaps, perhaps speculating there, the difference between that, when it moves over from east to west, is this, he's spirit, the individual spirit himself, right? Not, not without God. God's giving the individual the ability to do it, whereas the east is different, right? It's not empowering the, the hero, because we're very much the heroarchy, as Carlyle calls it. This hero worship is very powerful, and it's, uh, as we know, it's an Indo-European uh, dragon slaying is a very important Indo-European um, motif or, or way of being. So that's just one thing I found. The spearing, the actual slaying, individual slaying doesn't happen until it is that, it seems to be that golden, mm. that golden text. Once it's in Italy. Yeah. Well, Nathan, you've, you've talked about chaos camp. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you, do you see that as kind of connecting to what Scott's saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so the chaos camp motif in kind of ancient Middle Eastern uh, religions is that uh, you have a primordial uh, kind of situation with some sort of monstrous being who presides over that order. Um, so Tiamat would be a good example of this, the monstrous feminine who the warrior god uh, Marduk must slay. And in slaying, he then uses the corpse to form a new a new order, the one that we know. And so we are essentially dependent upon Marduk's victory over Tiamat. We are mm. his subjects. We are subordinate to him. We're contingent on it. And if she rises back up again, she's a threat to, to our existence because she's a threat to his reign. 
and you see that motif in a number of different um, places. So you could interpret like Odin slaying Ymir and then using his corpse to to form the universe as a version of this. Um, you've also got Zeus essentially overthrowing Kronos. Um, it's slightly different, but you can you can see there's a parallel there. Certainly, some scholars have made that suggestion. Um, and and of course, these are all gods slaying monsters, mm. right? Mm. So I think I think that's a that's a good connection to make. Um, we do have though maybe small scale versions of this, uh, and uh, I think this, but it's not the same. So like Perseus uh, slaying Cetus, um, which parallels the Saint George story quite closely. Um, insofar as uh, there was a, a queen uh, of Ethiopia who made a boast that she was more beautiful than uh, the, the supernatural beings. And, and Poseidon was angered by this and he floods the region and he sends Cetus to, to go and attack it. This great sea monster, the sea being the, the kind of chaos or the, the opponent of the ordered world. I think that's a better way to put it. And mm. uh, the, 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 so the king goes to the oracle, to the priest and, and asks, you know, what can I do to appease this? And he, he tells him, you must sacrifice your daughter to the sea monster. And then he will, he will depart. He will no longer attack you. So he, he does this, and this is Andromeda. But at that moment, Perseus arrives. Uh, Perseus, the slayer of Medusa. And he's been blessed by the gods in various different ways. He has the magical sword. He has the helmet. He has the, the winged uh, boots, which help him fly. And with his magical sword, he is able to slay Cetus, rescue the girl, and you know completes the hero's journey. So you do have that in the ancient ancient world, but it, I mean, it's a Greek story. So is it is it really? Um, have we moved away from the more Middle Eastern gods chaos camp? I don't know, but it, it's not the same as the chaos camp. I think because it doesn't establish a new order, it restores the order, but it's not a new order. Um, Would you say that? Chaos yeah, one is... one seems like it's cosmological, the primordial yeah. waters of of outside of time, where you know the first chief god, a Tiamat, being slain by Marduk, right? That's yeah. it's very primordial rather than the sort of individual hero that's in an established world that already exists. I think perhaps you could see a, uh, the Thor slaying of of the dragon. It's probably cosmological, but still in an established order where it happens even mm -hmm. at the end, right? So perhaps that's closer. But I think I think there is a slight difference between these cosmological pre-time narratives where the primordial snake is slain, yeah, uh, than than these ones where you're in a world, a dragon rises and it's slain again by the people that are in the order. What do you think? Yeah, it's it's a it's a smaller environment in which it's taking place mm. in. And it's not creating a new one, but it mm. might be transforming it or reestablishing it in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not kind of the foundations of being itself at stake. Mm. Um, Matt, you were you were going to say something? Oh, just yeah, just that. Yeah, and I think Scott brings up a great point that yeah, you have the cosmological, and then you have the in time, in history, events mm. and figures. So you have the the Siegfried and Fafnir. You have the the Beowulf. The dragon, you have um, Jason and the Cerberus, although that's going back to the Greek. And there, there is this kind of, these, these are the men who embody the, the cosmic. So you have the, the macro scale and then you have the micro. 
that kind of reflects what's going on at the cosmological. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point because the these heroic figures certainly, if you take um, a kind of Evolian interpretation, and I, I think Spengler is kind of on the same lines with this in some ways, is that the in the ancient myths uh, they they usually well they usually descended in some way from the divine, right? They mm. they usually have some kind of uh, usually it's Zeus who's who's parented somebody along the way, and uh, so like Hercules, for example, is. Yeah. Yeah. As a descendant of Zeus, right? Um, and in various versions, uh, is not Siegfried a descendant of Odin? Uh, yeah. And so I think I think uh, these characters are in themselves a bridge between the divine and the human. They are the pontifex. They are the bridge, and they reflect the divine in the human world um, by their heroic actions. There's a kind of um, wh whereas in perhaps yeah. medieval literature. The human is not quite the same in that they're they're in search for the divine. They mm. are going for the grail. They're hunting for the grail. They're going towards the place of the divine. They don't have it within themselves. Um, yeah. So, not, so that it's might not been be born. Different... It's initiation. It's one one is more about mm. expedition initiation. The other is about being birthed. Like Hercules, because there's a there's a hierarchy of heroes and a hierarchy of gods. Hercules yeah. is Zeus, but but he's demigod. He's half half, right? Whereas you, Saint George is human and becomes uh, becomes uh, canonized, so he's lifted into heaven. That's what canonization is. It's making you. It's saying, well, well, really, it's noticing that someone already is a hyper agent. He's already in heaven when he was dead. So, in terms of seeing it symbolically, if you're a materialist, see it as the unconscious. Is that he's such a powerful figure that this enters into the unconscious? And becomes deified in that way, but as the Christians see it, as Christians see it, it's you're in heaven and affecting world, and you can pray to that that demigod, I suppose you could call it, or hyper agent, and it will give you favor. Like when you're playing the Warhammer games and you go for the Imperium, and then the Emperor gives you. Just for people who don't understand this stuff, right? You do that and you get an enchantment, and then you have a benefit in battle, right? That's how it works. <laughs> anyway, go on. I love it. I love it. Rupert, is there anything you wanted to, to bring in at this point? Yes, there was a point. Um, it, we, we've sort of uh, gone a little bit past it now, but uh, the, the mm -hmm. point that was originally made about um, uh, praying praying to God to uh, you know intervene and slay the dragon on your behalf versus doing it yourself. Um, there is a noteworthy uh, section in a, a version of the story that, uh, that I've read <clears throat> where there's sort of like two things going on. Uh, in, in one case, in one sense, it is uh, George directly slaying the dragon himself. Uh, but this is after he has already been uh, sort of attacked twice by uh, by the dragon, and then is then only protected essentially by uh, divine intervention, more or less. Hmm. And so, in in thanks of that, in the middle of the fight, when the uh, when the dragon can't uh, continue to attack him, he uh, he kneels down in prayer. And then after that, after he after he said that thanks, he uh, he then goes back to uh, you know taking on his his more personal duty. And I think that, like the the meeting of these two things is for one thing quite interesting, but also potentially illustrates. I mean, you know, you could you could probably draw out some of the uh, some of the symbolism of all this. Uh, the 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 positive action of the uh, of the individual versus the uh, this sort of like um, you know putting it in God's hand protection that is, that is a you know the divine protection that is a, that is afforded. 
but also the sense in which this is not necessarily a uh, unified phenomenon. It is not entirely in George's hands, 100%, um, in all versions of the uh, of the more anglified version of the tale. Um, I wonder how many other versions of uh, of the story there are where um, you know perhaps more of it is put in uh, in God's hands and it's more in line with the as you described it the, the Semitic sort of uh, version of this tale. Yeah, when I say when I say individual, I don't mean that that uh, Descartes radical subject where it's just oh, no, the course, individual. Yeah. I mean it got, I mean God's working through him hundred yes, percent. Yes, yes, yeah, of course. In these legends, yeah. Because I don't want to make this case that England is this oh, it's this atheist place. It's just not true. It's no. It's working through. I think it's just more emotive of the god is is giving you this power. You know, like the emperor, mm. poof, enchanted space marine can now slay the thing because he's given this power rather than saying like that. God, please say like like a you know uh, Ash in in <laughs> back in Judaism praying for for Yahweh to intervene and then now Yahweh goes the lightning bolt comes down. No, it's that God gives it and then. Yeah, that's that's how yeah. I see it anyway. So, are we gonna? But, you, you're gonna you're gonna tell the sorry, Rupert. Go. But but, I mean, there is there is a, also a slight difference in the um, in the sense in the sense in the way in which uh, you're kind of like falling back on uh, free will to a certain extent, uh, and you're kind of like you might you might imbue the uh, the individual with power, like the, the individual might be imbued with with divine power in this case, um, to you know carry out carry out the act, but. In terms of protection, that is more that that is more a fallback of uh, a more direct divine intervention. So the the divine mm. intervention is not completely invisible to the subject um, to mm. you know only only sort of give thanks through faith. It, it's still there and it's mm. still very visible. But um, mm. when when one's own uh, sort of like will is being is being brought into the equation, that is something which can be backed up divinely rather than just put, being put yeah. straight into divine hands. Yeah, certainly. I think that with us at least, or when it comes into our tradition. The yes or no is very important to the person because that's essentially what we have. We have a decision between attractors that approach us in life and where we can either say yes to the one that is virtuous or yes to the one that's vice. It's not I don't believe in that full free will because you are affected by things that are in your past and various things. But you can say yes or no. That's our gift, right, is to say yes or no. So you given this divine power, perhaps, and you say yes, and you, when, and you get more of it as you move towards the light, right? Saying yes, 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 that way. So yeah, I think that that's that's probably that's the internals, I suppose, of these legends, um, as Rupert articulates uh, for for our side as it moves over to the west and across the channel. I, gu I guess as well, you could see the the difference in that. Um, that perhaps the difference is one of the the monk or priest as opposed to the knight. They are both, uh, you know, they're both legitimate ways of relating to the divine. But mm -hmm. one is in, you know, typically a kind of peaceful, um, passive, perhaps in certain degree, like allowing the divine in through contemplation, mm -hmm. meditation, acts of charity, etc. In, in, in certain ways, whereas the night is a much more active manifestation of that same phenomenon. But mm -hmm. they, they are, so they're, they're both agents of God. But they're they're directed in in different ways, um, and perhaps the the um, Georgian version is like the monk version of George. The uh, Western version is like the yes, knight yeah. version of George. Um, that's right. No, that's that's, yeah. that's what I felt about it when I was re, uh, looking into this. I have several times, but because often when you're not canonized, he's not canonized for slaying the dragon. That's something that that is imbued as it goes west. I think. 
Um, mm. He's canonized for uh, most ca- most saints aren't cano- uh, canonized for slaying things or slaying people. Right? <laughs> They're canonized for acts of faith or being martyred, aren't they? So, yeah. so it's it's very different. And this is where I would make the case. I don't know if I should get into it now, but it's it's a different George. It is a different George. And he, this is an English George, or at least a Northern European George. Um, as a hyper agent, it's selected by this thing. I won't go too deep into that because I'll just monopolize uh, the conversation, but I'll just you know, throw it back. What do you think of that? Well, Matt, I know I know you you were saying to me earlier that you thought that the two, let's say the two Georges actually have, there's a continuity between them in some ways. So I, I want I want to put you two into to combat here. Sure, sure. Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's an important question because, you know, as to the origins of St. George, you could say that, you know, Greek born in Turkey, uh, modern day Turkey, but you can see in the way that he plays out his life with the heroic charge into battle, but also with his martyrdom, you see, you see something that ties into a very distinct, a very distinctly Northwest European view of battle and death, which is this, the sort of long defeat. It's, it's the triumph in not only going out and slaying the monsters, that have come and come to attack the village. I mean, in, in that way, very reminiscent of Beowulf. It has that same sort of energy to it, but it also comes with the the sense of you know tri- triumph through death. That death is part of the process of the heroic. That death is part of the experience by which one is by which glory is attained. Really, and and. It's through that journey and it's through the whole process and it's through this embrace, in many ways, embrace of death as this glorious triumphant path to heaven that we really see, I think, something that fits very well in with with English, the English spirit. Mm. And you maybe that's more universal. And as I'm sort of thinking through it, you know, that that resonates very much with Christianity in and of itself as it has this very strong martyrdom belief that's embedded in it. But I think maybe the reason why this feels so distinctly Northwest European and English is because the English, even when they were off and astray from Christianity, even when they were pagan, they never strayed so far that that was distant from them, that this this understanding of death as this process by which one reaches Valhalla, by which one reaches the state of glory and achievement beyond themselves, that that's never something that was ever lost. And I think the, the story of St. George resonates so much, perhaps, with the English and is so distinctly English is because it has that throughout its heart. What, but what do you guys make of that? I mean, you guys, you guys are the Englishmen here, so I'll, I'll throw that to you. Well, I- I would say, I'm just going to jump in. I would say that, okay, so when you have George, I think he's selected by something that's in English being, hyper agent or whatever. It just suits what it is. And it's almost a way, there are stories of Richard going to the Crusades and selecting George when he goes to St. George's. There are accounts of this. So let's just, let's just take it that that happened. So Richard, Richard was someone that was said to have carried around Excalibur. 
he's he he actually called it Excalibur. And these are people that are versed in these narratives, right? So there's a there's a connection between Arthur and St. George in that way. He selects St. George. This is a way though of selecting something that is canonized after he wins a battle over there, he selects selects George. Because Arthur isn't canonized. You need a hyper agent, which is in heaven, that's with your battle in the Crusades. And so that's kind of the birth of the English flag as well, when when this is selected. And then later on, after that, he comes back and they say, they say that these stories of George came with the Crusaders that came back to England after that, right? And so later on down the chain, you have Edward III, who founds the Order of the Garter. And that's based on St. George as well. But also it's Arthurian round table. This is inspired by the same sort of thing. But again, Arthur is not a canonized thing. So it seems to me that you have this thing that's selecting what suits it already. Perhaps that is, and I'm, perhaps that's Thor, you could say, in a way. It's a dragon-slaying being or hyper agent that that content suits. That content, because as Jung talks about, an archetype, it picks the content that it suits and says, ah, great, that's me, right? And this is something that's acceptable. This canonized figure, right, is acceptable. And I'm not saying that can't be added to and changed. That hyper agent has things come into its dynamic system, if you want to call it. And that's selected, right, and, and, and adds to it in some way, right? Because as we say, as Christianity adds hope to Ragnarok, it has a hope or the universe isn't destroyed. It's, it's a new sort of emergent feature, you could say, when you add these things together. And so when you see that, I would say there's evidence of this when you look at the Hofstede uh, Cultural Comparison Index, which is like a bulk this is a social scientific, psychological, you might have heard of this before, where it compares all cultures, but they have done, it's quantitative, right? So when you get England, so this is where I want to make the case for the English St. George, even different from the Scandies, right? So when you compare these countries, England's higher in individuality than all of Europe, which uh, masculinity uh, higher than all of uh, Denmark, Norway, uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, right? And individuality. And higher than most of them in uh, tolerance of the unknown. Dragon slaying, right? Tolerance of the unknown. But the Scandies are, are quite high in tolerance of the unknown, but they're lower in those other, those other two things. The Germans are high in masculinity, but they're low in tolerance of the unknown, right? So these things come together. So when I say individuality, that's, I mean, with the English, we like our hierarchies. We like our it's all for the sake of the king. It's for the sake of the hierarchy. It's not individualism gone wild like America. It's for the sake of the king. It's her heroarchy. It's, it's, it's her heroism, not individualism, right? And so you can see in that bulk measure that there is this unique thing. It's the masculinity, which means competitiveness. It means being wanting to get to the top of the hierarchy, right? High in that, whereas all the other Europeans are lower except the Italians, they're high in, in masculinity, but low in tolerance to the unknown, tolerance to, mm. to uncertainty, right? So high in masculinity with the Southern Mediterraneans, but they're low in that. So this unique, and, and here's some proof of that, what muddling through, we know what muddling, oh, we'll muddle through. That's, a, that's us, we're, we're very tolerant to that, right? Being exposed to that. Uh, and a, another, uh, it's called in Australia, she'll be right. Oh, she'll be right. We'll muddle through. That means that, when you have the unknown approach, you don't just go, oh, no, we can't, like a German. You don't go, oh, we have to, you know, we need the system, lichter Eber. No, 
right? It's, it's more, we'll figure out a way. We'll just we'll muddle through, right? It's tolerance the unknown. And that uniquely suits an expeditionary soul. Expeditionary, because that's what St. George is. He arrives from the outside, comes to this village, does his thing. What that really is, is dragon slaying. It's Britain will rule the waves. It's the mastery, because ultimately the dragon is in the water. In this story, the dragon's in the lake, right? That's where the, the highest unknown is. And so it's really part of the national ethos. I'm not saying these places, by the way, don't have this. It's Northern European. I'm not saying they don't have it. I'm saying, like, in a value hierarchy, it's not just about having the value. It's about how, how high, how energetic it is. And so I would say it's these unique characteristics are more energetic or the most energetic in England. And we have a unique claim, and that's why it's selected for as the patron saint, because it's something that's in being. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, well, and where do English explorers go? I mean, Scandies, when they have explored historically, they, I mean, they've traveled all around, but they're still generally staying in climates that for the most part are more akin to what they're used to. Whereas in a way that's totally unprecedented, the English, I mean, you do get cases like trading routes down through Iraq, but mm. in terms of what the English are known for, in an unprecedented way that no other group on earth is like, the English go to the environments that are most hostile. You know, they, they mm. go out to they go out to South Africa, Rhodesia, they go out to the Wild West, they go out to the deserts of Australia, they go out to, you know, explore through the Congo. You know, they're they're going mm. to these places that are they're ideally suited for it because of those combinations of traits to be in this place that is foreign to the environments that they're used to and foreign to the way of life, but they are capable of, of thriving in the unknown and thriving in these, these spaces that you would think would be totally alien to them. But yet you see mm. them kind of rise to the challenge as they're, they're, on, they're on activating all their gears. I don't know. More than that, I, I agree, but I... I don't want to. I just don't want to talk down the Dutch either, because the Dutch are very low, uh, very uh, high in tolerance to the unknown as well. They're just not as masculine and competitive. So they do, and they go Dutch East Indies. That does explain the Dutch East Indies and all this stuff yeah. too. So I just want to say that I don't want to talk down the Scandies as well, because they are, a lot of them are low in that unknown thing. Sorry, Rupert, I cut you off. Go. Well, I mean, the, the Dutch are quite similar to uh, to English, English in a lot of ways, uh, including if you're going by, you know, especially connecting Frisians to uh, Anglo-Saxons. There's quite a lot of commonality there but mm. but anyway you yeah, know the, the other point that i was going to make is uh, so not only not only is there a tendency to so, sort of go to and map out these uh, most in, inhospitable places but uh, also turning every basically everywhere into a garden of some sort mm. right i mean mm. they were successful they were long lasting in their achievements in True. a way that you mm. don't see quite so much with the spanish or you know again with the scandies much to my ire you know, one day, one day we will uh, we'll carve our own turf here on North America. But anyway, anyway. Yeah, I mean, we, we Australia is probably one of the best examples because we, we, we go to this place that is famously inhospitable, you know, basically a giant yeah. desert and turn it into this like massive bread, bread basket. And, uh, mm. you know, one of the almost terraforming, you know, quite large portions of the country into uh, mm. English fields, more or less, somehow. And you're so right there, too, because Hen there's Henry and Lawson were two British explorers that were just they were looking for more land. And they went out to a place called the Blue Mountains. And I read the account of this. And it just felt like 
these guys, the way to describe it is that they were on the edge of the very hell. And they said, this place looks like the apocalypse. It looks like the very gods themselves threw thunderbolts down to carve out. When you look at the photos, it's exactly like that. And I've been there. So it's, it looks like someone's gone like this, and ripped out, thrown it, <laughs> ripped out these, you know, like the Grand Canyon, but kind of more craggy and worse. So there is that in hostility, in ho in hos hostility. Yeah, you know the word I'm trying to say. <laughs> in I, hospitality, I, I can't even say it. <laughs> in hospitality. In hospitality. Yeah. There we go. There we go. I think I think um, you're all right that there there is this strong um, desire to c conquer the uh, the inhospitable to explore and conquer the inhospitable places to civilize them and to make them into almost almost setting your boundaries or building a new settlement in a place where nobody thought it was possible before and that requires the conquest of the chaotic monstrous forces such as the dragon mm. but i i think the other side of that and i think rupert's comment on it you know uh building gardens or cultivated gardens mm. out of these wastelands is quite interesting because if you if you think of what saint george is doing he's not just fighting the dragon for its own sake mm. he's also doing it to protect a community and thus bring it back to life essentially renew it set it on the mm. right path and when you look at like the the settler uh, kind of frontier mm. myth when these pioneers go out they're not just doing it for themselves they're doing it so that they're, they're over they're civilizing the barbaric chaotic forces to provide for the security safety and comfort for their communities and i think that's a, a key mm. part of this being this kind of english being which relates to saint george yes is is that yes. it it um there's certain ideals that, that are relational tied in with the individual heroic conquest that yes. perhaps in other in other uh cultures like i don't see that so much in um mm. in kind of greek stories of like perseus for example he, mm. he does it to win to win the girl he doesn't really mm. do it for the kingdom um mm. I, when Norse fights Yorgmanda, it's not really for, you know, human society. It's because Yorgmanda poses mm. a threat to. Well, well, maybe you could say he poses a threat to to Asgard, but mm. I I, th I think the point stands that it, it's um, it's for something beyond the self, beyond one's own glory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sense of the common good. I think, and mm. which is a, a, is an emergent value. I th you could say that's emergent Christian value. The common good didn't really exist in the ancient world. I mean, you had mm. eudaimonia, but it's not really the same as common good. Um, well, I mean, Rose Publica. And you, yeah. Um, I'll just back up your case, though, with what you were saying, Nathan, with just two other examples, is that um, St. George also asked them, they're pagans. And so he's, he wants to, he says, oh, well, if you convert as well and you pray, this will help this, what's going on here before he slays the dragon. So that's planting a garden, isn't it? Um, I'm not saying other people don't do this, by the way. It's uh, of course the Dutch and various people go out and convert people to Christianity. But um, and the other example is uh, uh, Gawain. Uh, no, sorry, King Arthur. When he goes, when he is a uh, when the Imperium turns up asking for taxes, and when he goes on his uh, when they come to him, right? Uh, it's this, and he's forced to go over there. He was just trying to grill on his barbecue. He didn't, don't tread on me. He goes, ah, well, you want your taxes, do you? No, and then goes over and conquers everyone. He turns up at one keep and sees who it is and, and, and lays siege to it. 
because they don't come and speak to him. And they eventually come out and they do battle. Gawain does battle with the person in the keep. And they realize the people inside are of the right. They have the common good already. And they just leave. They just leave. It shows they're not there to just conquer and destroy. They're there to see, if, right, to, to make sure the garden is correct. Or, and so when their garden, oh, this is a correct garden, we'll go back. The expedition's not needed in this particular place anyway. We'll, well contrast and, and, the English. Oh, go ahead. Well, j just very quickly, Robin Hood is another example of somebody who serves the common good because his, his initial conflict is Prince John takes his keep, takes his lands, calls him an outlaw. Now, he, you know, naturally he leads some kind of resistance, but he doesn't just do it on behalf of himself. He does it for those who are also innocent, who have been dispossessed, but are weaker than himself. He provides for them. He gives them a place of safety. He gives them wealth. He tries to restore their fortunes too. So he's fighting for not just his own uh, kind of right, but for the common good, for justice, mm. for the king's justice. Mm. Um, Matt, you go ahead. Well, just contrast the the English knight and the temperament of the English knight when he goes off or when he goes to the New World versus the Spaniard, the conquistador, when he goes out. And you see the Englishman is much more balanced in his temperaments of exploration and conquest and also tied in with this cultivation and this temperance to be able to do it in such a way that you're ambitious enough and you're aggressive enough to get it done but also take take your time in in the cultivation of family and community in a way that with the spanish mm -hmm. conquistador it's much more high in this very aggressive ambition but mm -hmm. lacks the same temperance and ability to cultivate that we saw at least in the new world when the conquistador the conquistadors go out and they're full of fire and they're full of this lust mm. for life but mm. lacking in the temperance in the way that's particular to the english and then you get in the cases of you know some other europeans who are maybe ex a much, so much higher in the sort of temperance that they lack this they lack the same level of Faustian drive to go out into the mm. unknown. Yeah, that, that seems to gel with the Hofstede um, cultural index as well, because I think the Spanish are higher in masculinity than the English, even though the English are high in masculinity. But they're lower in long-term thinking, I think, from memory, which would mean that, yeah, that they're not thinking about, ah, oh, what's this place going to be in 50 years? Let's do this. Perhaps. I, yeah, I just think, remember comparing them, that does seem to gel. So just backing up what you said. And it's not, again, it's not saying that they don't do any long-term planning. It's not saying, it's just this, this trait balance, isn't it? It's not saying that, oh, it's just the English that go out and do the common good. It's saying, oh, there's a balance of traits here that suit this particular thing. For people watching saying, oh, but we do this in Denmark, or we do that. Well, yeah, okay, but it's this, isn't it? It's, it's okay, that, that has a certain feature. Why, why do these stories out. appeal here and grow here yeah. and become popular here and not in other places, I guess? It's, yeah. Yeah. Matt, go, Matt, go ahead. I was just going to agree that, yeah, it's it's this kind of balance of temperaments that gives the flavor to each of these nations and peoples in, in this way that's, you know, brings out so much uh, sort of the true diversity, you could say, of Europe and the true charm of it is seeing this different balance of temperaments and mm. aesthetics and cultural traits that really resonate. So it, that's part of the fun of it. Diversity is our strength. Um, and uh, uh, 
but but I I think um the, the, there's one caveat I I would want to add add to this because I, I I agree that this comes from this this culture or northwestern culture uh, during a particular time frame we're we're really talking um the the medieval period here that this arises the the merging of uh, European cultures and Christianity in a distinctive way. But I think there's a particular tradition which manifests that because, you know, it's, it, it's not just that other, other countries have these sorts of traits, but in a different balance. It's also within England itself, there'll be some who have it more than others. There, there's some who did not display this. And indeed, uh, the period just before, uh, we, Rupert, we were talking about this uh, last week, the anarchy before Henry II establishes or restores order to the country. Mm. We see barons uh, robbing each other blind and the ordinary folk being terrorized by bandits and so on. So I, I think mm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a tradition of chivalry, mm. which is quite important here. That's the ideal that we're essentially describing, which takes root in this nation. And if, if I may, there's, a, there's a, a, a very short essay by C.S. Lewis on chivalry which I, I wanted mm. to just read a couple of paragraphs from because I think it uh, articulates much of what we've been saying and how this this St. George is essentially an exemplification of this, this ideal. And I, you can see why he appeals so so strongly. Um, well, just, just before you do... Go, go ahead, Rupert, there's, yeah. Uh, there, there's a, there is a sense in which... And uh, thinking back to the uh, that, that stream that we did, Mm. Talking about the the anarchy and Henry the Second um, did come to mind when uh, when we were talking about Richard the First and how he'd been uh, inculcated in all in all of these kinds of uh, romances and and myths and everything. And yes, it's exactly the same kind of the same kind of period. We were we were making this exact point about uh, about the kind of people who were being brought up uh, sort of in Henry the Second's kind of world, with Richard the First mm. obviously being one of the sons of Henry the Second. And um, I, I think there's something to this idea of the uh, the renewal that happens every now and then, uh, perhaps in some kind of like uh, you know generational sort of situation where all of the uh, the romances and all of the all the chivalrous tales and everything are sort of like rediscovered and or, or sometimes reinvented for a new generation, and then it, it gives rise to this new generation of, of people who respect these old tales, mm. and and they reverence them so much because they've lived through what it's like when men do not follow those ideals and exploit yeah. one another and and so on. Exactly, because um, you have you have almost a mirroring of this phenomenon um, happening for for one with the anarchy, and obviously towards the end of the the anarchy, you have the uh, the rediscovery of all these all these kinds of tales, and then you get a new generation who are who are raised mm -hmm. on them, and then the same kind of thing happens at the uh, the end of the War of the Roses as well, where you have a rediscovery of the uh, the romances and the Arthurian the Arthurian legends and whatever with uh, I think it was Tom, Thomas Mallory, and uh, and yeah, there's like again a, a rediscovery uh, and a, a new appreciation of uh, of all of these, of all of these tales, with uh, Henry the Second, uh, no, Henry the, the Seventh, sorry, coming along, and uh, mm. and kind of like styling himself very explicitly in these kinds of terms, and you know, naming his firstborn son Arthur, and and all, and all, mm. using all this yeah. kind of an iconography to um, kind of like nest himself and uh, and sort of like the realm around him in this like very deliberately in this tradition. And we must remember too that these aren't cynics when they look in, they're looking into being and they believe this stuff, and so I believe it. Right, we the fact that we don't believe it is the problem, right? So when they're looking into the tales, they're they're, they're seeing that it's a, a part of being, right? You have to get into their mindset. I think the modern mindset's incorrect, like many of us are realizing. 
right? Is that these are forces that are in English being, you call it. I want to talk about the unconscious. I know I keep saying that. These things, Arthur, these things are there. So when they're looking at it, and especially for them, as we know from C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the medieval mind, the way they see the world, the, the Elizabethans, the way they see the world, they believe in elves. They believe in all these things, right? So we know C.S. Lewis describes this as well in their mindset, high magic, low magic. They deeply believe this stuff. So they're not saying, ah, I'm just going to, like these communists with these Marxists when they go and say, oh, why Edward III founded the Order of the Garter? And they, oh, it's a political reason. It's about power. And they believe it. When they look in, they're in, they're in this, like you said, there's a time of degeneracy. And they, and they think to this thing that formerly was or that's in being, they think, well, we must get, find this thing. Where is it? Right? It still exists. They believe it. And then they start naming their sons Arthur and doing this thing and forming. What an amazing thing for Edward III to found this order of the garter say this nightly we're going to renew Camelot, which is in a sense what we're all trying to do now right is to re-imbue re what is true the truth of being and these the, a mighty thing for a king to do you don't see that again well you see a bit with henry the eighth he does do so i think he does uh and like you said to his father um sets at least his brother was set up to be arthur Right. So it's not just Edward. It's these it does happen again and again, like Rupert says, this reconnection to the truth of being. I think really it's what's in their unconscious, if you want to call it something behind manifestation that comes again and says, no, imbue me, see me come again. Right. And the content fills into it and they find the thing that represents it. And that becomes their hyper agent. And there's a, there's in a sense where Harry, England and St. George, they're all the same thing. That's they're talking about the same thing. England, the king, is this the mortal that wears St. George, right? St. George is essentially an extension of the king when he's on expedition, when the king goes out. Because he's not always St. George, because St. George is a sort of an expeditionary appendage, right? You can't always be St. George. That's Gawain. Gawain is an extension of Arthur. He's the realm incarnate to go out on the quest and attack. But when you go back to the realm, you're not St. George, because St. George is for a particular thing. So if you see England as a pantheon of the greatest heroes, that's one appendage of the overking, as I talk about, that gets sent out to do the thing. And we see this evidenced in the sacred symbols of England with the Spurs of St. George. That's particularly for the military, right? The Spurs of St. George mean it's what the king is supposed to do. What do you do with Spurs? You're, you're mounted on a horse. The horse is the body. The horse is the military. What does a king do with spurs? He spurs the body. He spurs the navy to go on expedition, which is the body of the military, right? So if you're the virtual, the virtue engine of the principle, you're the principle, the principality of the principality. And that's a, the St. George is the expeditionary body. And so that's why they are the spurs of St. George as a sacred symbol that moves the military out on the expedition. So you can see this organism, and St. George is one part of that organism. Rupert. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just quite a lot to digest. To digest. I mean, I, I was just gonna, I was gonna come in with a, with an even more recent uh, example, which I think is is also potentially quite illustrating. Uh, if you're thinking in these kinds of, uh, in these kinds of terms of cycles of sort of degeneracy and renewal after after rediscovering uh, all of this kind of um, like all all the tales and all the romances and all the myths, um, the last time that uh, this got really popular in the uh, common sort of culture as I understand it is uh actually in the late Victorian period, which you could you can potentially kind of like link again into uh, a lot of the chivalry of the uh 
the late Victorian officer class uh, leading into sort of World War One and the the aristocrats and how they uh, how they sort of conducted themselves. Now, obviously, we we tend to think of that um, that whole sort of like movement and ethic as, as dying quite quickly in the uh, in the mud. But um, I mean, there is a there is a very definite sense in which among a lot of people, it it uh, it still stays alive, but it, it it is sort of like cut quite abruptly short for perhaps the vast majority of the population. But well, if, you, if you're well, thinking these kinds of terms, then um, Mm. Then yeah, I mean this, this is something which once again sinks into the culture and the the higher virtues of uh, of the Englishman and the English aristocrat especially can uh, can flourish again. Well, well, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, what are the most popular books during that period? Oh, it's the Waverley novels by Walter Scott, who champions chivalry and writes mm. books like Ivanhoe. The rediscovery of Arthur during that period. Alfred Lord Tennyson writes a cycle of poems about Arthur, which then go on to inspire the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and men like William Morris, who put it into painting and tapestry and stained glass and poetry and so on. So there, there definitely is that within the Victorian era. I, I definitely see that, Rupert. Uh, I, I think that's a very astute point as to to the age itself, which was there was a there was a strong emphasis on kind of moral and social reform tied to, you know, we, we were talking about this exploratory uh, dynamic, this desire to go and build the British Empire, essentially. But this project mm. wasn't just one for conquest. Actually, a, a lot, a lot of it, especially in Africa, was um, motivated by the desire to eradicate slavery. And so, we need to go and conquer these places to make them better societies that they won't need to ha to have slavery anymore. Mm. So, it's this kind of garden dynamic once once again uh, coming through of. We want to to improve these places. We want to renew them and make them better, um, which was at the heart of that project in many ways. Um, I, I don't think it's an accident that all these things are happening at the same the same time. You could even see it as an organism's immune response. If I'm just going to keep taking it back mm. to to the non-individual level, is that okay? So you have a cycle like Rupert, Rupert talked about, and so the organism mm. isn't needed. So you could even consider it as an internal expedition of St. George in a way. Thinking about it as if, okay, you need a territory that needs to be reconquered within the kingdom of England in the mind, virtual mind, you could, you could say, right? So this organism, it's an immune response. The conservative revolutions we've seen are, were immune responses of other organisms, you could see as well. So it's not needed. It is need, then it is needed. The poets see it first that it's needed. Tennyson, as you mentioned, Nathan. So that's the organism, right? It's overking. I want to call it a hyper agent sends its particular way of being and you mentioned rupert mentioned um aristocratic that's very true too because um recently uh some person that watches my channel said oh we're going to see is, is it the yeoman's time to rise and take over the lordship that's very egalitarian that's not english it the yeoman is a particular archetype uh, of, the, of an organism that's needed at a time of degeneracy like we're talking about uh that rises but for the sake of the hierarchy. It's not rabid individualism or egalitarianism. So he's a 20%. You could even consider him a warrior class. And he's lifted. He's reading these stories like we are, like Tennyson and such. He's and he's inspired by the chivalry and does the renewal that the aristocrats can't do. But then they bring him in and reforms it. And so there's a sort of a, uh, a needed, uh, there, are, there are a certain percentage of the aristocrats and the knights that are still not corrupted, but a lot larger than are, like Tress Chesterton talks about that too. You can have a wig, there was a big wig element that were completely corrupted and they're obsessed with fashion. 
right? So not all aristocrats are great, but there's always a portion that are conservative. And they're the people that Robin Hood works with. They're the people that and you see that with Sir, the Sir, uh, I can't remember who he is, Sir someone. But it's for the sake of the hierarchy. It's an immune response, I think, as Rupert talked about. It's a thing that, that moves in waves. And the problem is this progressive revolution and technology seems to have disabled it to some degree. So I well, hope I that it can rise again. Let's go. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I was, I was going to say, I think there is a, also a more deliberate component. I mean, if we're going to draw it all the way back to Will, uh, and especially at the uh, organism side, uh, or, you know, in, in the super organism kind of framing, um, there's, there's been a sort of like a de deliberate attack. So, mm. you know, if, if you're getting into the nitty gritty of politics and everything, then uh, ever since 45, there's been a, a quite deliberate attack to destroy the, uh, especially the generational wealth of, uh, of the aristocrats. Um, and so the, the sense in which they can actually sustain themselves materially is, is sort of gone and they are forced to return down to the same kind of, uh, the same kind of levels or the same kind of ethics as, um, as all of the, you know, yeomen again in this, in this frame of, uh, of just kind of like joining in the rat race, because that's the only way for them to keep their head above water, especially when they're kind of sitting on, uh, sitting on their, their inheritance and their duties that they've, uh, you know, that they've been bequeathed. Well, in, within the instinct of, oh. Please go ahead. No, no, no. I've talked enough. Go, go. Well, within the instinct of the Englishmen, within the middle-class Englishmen, within the yeomen, there is this, I think we see the manifestation of this individualism and this desire for uh, a more primal way of life where you're, you're less constrained by the, the incredible managerialism that we have today. This gets expressed mm -hmm. as libertarianism, but the reason it gets expressed as this sort of hyper-individualistic libertarianism is because the modern man is so removed from these healthy hierarchies that I don't think we realize just how much freer we are with a proper hierarchy yes. versus that. It's like, oh, we'll just get rid of all of it because we just want to, we just want to go back to having our land, having our farm, mm -hmm. raising our cattle and being, being mostly left mm -hmm. alone. But really that that in the more older english tradition that does happen under the hierarchy and you're actually freer within that than you would be on your own well there's uh, i mean carlisle carlisle sort of recognized this as well um in the uh in sort of his various criticisms of the complete sort of abandonment of uh of standards especially for the the sort of lower classes the the older comparison that comes to mind is uh, is that between something like the uh, the peasant or the serf or the you know the villain versus the vagabond because the vagabond is much more ultimately free but um but the villain is, right, is right. able to exert a lot more ac actual you know useful freedom in that they are yeah. able to actually enjoy and, and properly live their life rather than just sort of like uh, scrounging from one day to the, day to the next and causing uh, much trouble in doing so yeah, the, the, the vagabond is oppressed by his freedom. And this is the problem. This is the dynamic, right? And this is the inherent flaw of the Jeff Jeffersonian yeoman. He mistook, he misunderstood it. He, he saw the yeoman in, 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 um, in Virginia and attributed that to be, he wanted that to be the entire republic, all these yeomen. No, the true yeoman isn't a hierarchy. It's, it's a potential to rise and a few yeoman are selected. It's a heroarchy, right? As Hakala talked about. And they ascend the hierarchy to be a part of it. And so the Virginians understood that, but unfortunately that had to do with the slavery stuff and all that. So it's been completely ignored. And then the Puritan yeoman gets this idea, this fake yeoman gets taken to be, or oh, we'll all be either this libertarian yeoman that has no hierarchy, it's just we're all the same, fake egalitarian yeoman. It's just not correct. 
Yeoman is more like a warrior class that went over with uh, the Black Prince, that went over with, as every able-bodied man in England had a longbow, right? So it's a potential for this warrior freebornness, right? And everyone went over in the wars, in the Hundred Years' War, and you've got every able body This never happened anywhere else. And this is going off subject a little with Robin Hood, but every able-bodied man training with, training with the longbow, this happened nowhere else. And uh, doing the wars. But, and then they came back, right? And they had these skills that, that no other nation had. And not everyone took up that potential. But then Jefferson takes it too far. They take it too far to be this egalitarian, full libertarianness. No, it's hierarchical, right? Uh, without that you lose your meaning, as Rupert said, without that uh, thing to ascend that's been sanctified by the king and the, as, as a pope, essentially. Um, that's, that's meaning, that's story. You, you, fight, you fight as a hero to earn through merit. And this is the most meritorious aristocracy in the world, the English one, and a very small one, right? You fight to earn these things. Uh, and, and like we saw, Edward, they united people, they united yeomen, and they to have arms. Shakespeare purchased arms, purchased, uh, right? That brings you into England's story. It's making, it's en enchanting you. So, yeah, it's just important to understand it's not egalitarian. Some yeomen will rise. That's the, that to be a replacement elite, we could say, right? <laughs> At the vanguard. Not all yeomen, but they, they're populists, though. But yeah, throwing it back to you guys. Well, Nathan, do you want to, for those who are a little less familiar with the story, do you want to give people a bit of a bit of an overview of kind of what happens with the key events are? Uh, before before we get to that point, because I, I, I think I, I've just been enjoying this conversation, to be honest, Matt. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get to that in due course. But I wanted to just raise one 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 aspect, which is that or, or two things. One is that this this idea of the yeoman, I think it has its roots in Alfred the Great's military reforms, actually in terms of um, the development of the feards, uh, so this standing militia where every freeman had to provide his own arms and serve it, within the feard, um, in contrast to other Saxon kingdoms which didn't have essentially a standing militia or military that could be called up at any point. And this actually helped Alfred to... Uh, you know, defeat the Vikings in various ways at various points. And that tradition then gets carried forward that the freemen bear arms to protect their kingdom, essentially, um, mm. during that period. Uh, Rupert, come, come yeah. on in and advise. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that kind of like uh, sort of bolsters one of the overarching points here, which is uh, mm. you know, if, if you're looking at uh, St. George as a kind of uh, avatar for, for all, all of England, then uh, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that what you see on the ground, sort of like materially in terms of England, the makeup of England is something which is vastly more inherently militarized and, and militarized across the entire spectrum compared to almost anywhere else. Yes, 100 percent, because it, that, that, that we don't have a professional army because the Black Plague is more evidence for this. Black Plague happened. That's why the king ordered every able-bodied man in England to train with a longbow. The French went to do it. They realized, oh, crap, they're too powerful. We don't want too many citizens having the longbow, right? And so they had professional armies on the continent, but every man, and like you said, the Berger defense system of Alfred the Great, I forgot about that. The Berg defense system was a decentralized mm -hmm. defense system. Again, it's not egalitarian, though. It's part of a hierarchy. We just need to yes. beat this in. We don't want to get to this French egalitarianness. It's just not how it works. So it's part of a hierarchy, that Berg defense system, and there's so much empirical evidence for it, right? So you've got like three pieces there 
um, that, that I think prove that, especially because you just don't see those things on the continent. Also, there's a, uh, Enoch Powell talks about this as well, the rule of the country, uh, that the power on the continent was with the city, uh, the city corporations, uh, as it rises out of the medieval period on the continent. In England, the burgesses have, have the power. That's where the commons comes out of um, and such, right? So the country, rural lords have a lot more power Right in the in the way it was uh, the way it emerges, but yeah, the French city states. Um, you can even see this in in where the king building Versailles. Uh, it's very uh, it's not very country. Whereas the Englishman goes out to the country to for his leisure. That's not a French thing. It's not a very German thing to do as it is in England. You don't see it in their novels. In their novels, they're all centered in Paris. In our novels, in the Victorian period and such, it's always the country. It's always going out to fox hunting and men talking about going out hunting. It's very different. I I, to I totally agree, and uh, I I think th th there was just there was just one other point I, w I wanted to kind of circle back to uh, that um, you you had all been mentioning this co this contrast between the hierarchy and the bureaucracy or managerialism that we live in today, mm. and I think that we see this if we if we want to talk about like being and why do certain stories uh, appeal to us, well it. It, recently, I, I, I wrote an article on Praxarchy, uh, published on Praxarchy, about why do post-apocalyptic stories appeal to us today? What is it about, like the zombie movie, uh, that strikes a chord with modern Western audiences? And I, I think it's the fact that it's a, it's in a it's, it's a, in a world that we exist in, so it's not going back to the medieval era or something like that, where all of that managerialism disappears. And you then have uh, various heroic men having to found or civilize, you know, the wilderness, which is made up of monstrous beings like zombies, other gangs who are trying to tyrannize and exploit and will kill you. These few heroic figures have to kind of uh, settle the land, conquer the land, make it safe, make a clear division between good and evil. And you develop a hierarchy as a consequence, but it's not based on procedure or on kind of various kind of stale forms of patronage. Mm. It's based upon this person has the, the qualities that I admire and I can serve in the system that he has kind of ordered, that he decides what is right and wrong. And I follow mm. and obey in accordance. And together, therefore, we build our garden amidst this horrible, chaotic post-apocalyptic mm. waste. I think that's part of the reason why it appeals to so many people mm. today. It kind of mirrors what we're reading about, but in a context that we can kind of, it, we can imagine ourselves in that context in a way we might yeah. not be able to in the medieval. Yeah, I think that that's a great scenario to show the emergence of principalities that have mm. a prince at the top of them. Right. Whereas what we're controlled by is a stratified, uh, sorry, is a petrified dead being, which is the techne. It's a system that was is made of old being, which hasn't touched the truth in a long time. So we're tyrannized by it. But yeah, Rupert, you have to jump in there, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, though, it's, it's, it is almost a reversion to that kind of like a personal rule that you would associate with feudalism. If, if you actually get into the, the detail of what feudalism was then you get into a very lengthy uh, academic dis academic discussion of uh, you know what constitutes where but in terms of like what you imagine feudalism to be it's there there is definitely a sense in which that uh, that did exist where 
uh, things were happening on a much more of a personal level and things were less uh, procedurally prescribed according to um, you know according to like bureaucratic regulations and uh, and laws to be interpreted by uh, by various courts although you know that was still a little bit of that we can't get away from it but um, there there is there is that like much more personal relation and you can you can always just appeal to someone much more directly going all the way up to the king if you uh, if you can and if you feel like you need to mm. just, just yeah, on that note uh, go ahead scott go ahead oh i was just going to say that there's a big difference between uh, having a lord or a hero that has the imperium within as avola mm. talks about with the frankish lords and as i talk about with the the yeoman inheriting a bit of that having the imperium within freeborn Englishman, that's what that is. It's, you, lose, you can lose that, of course, as you become more uh, managerial, and that's what will happen to us eventually. But yeah, there's a big difference between that and being centralized bureaucratic rule. That's corrupted. That's a, that's a tyrann tyrannical system that will eventually, which is already stale and will eventually fall because no one has the soul, that soul of, of the Imperium that you need, uh, that you should have, that makes you self-deterministic, yet being in repose of the ancestors as... Heidegger might put it, but yeah, go on. Well, just, just on this note, we've had a very uh, apt super chat from Lady of Shalott, good friend of the show. Hello, Lady of Shalott, for five uh, Australian dollars. There must be hierarchy. Nature is hierarchy. Any group, animal or human, organically forms hierarchy. To go against hierarchy is to go against God. Couldn't agree more. And a happy St. George's Day to you, Lady of Shalott. Hope you are keeping well in the land of Australia. Um, I, I think as well, there, there would be another thing that I, I would want to add as well, is that the um, with the kind of post-apocalyptic story, we have a clear division between the place of safety and the place of um, danger, right? You've got, you build your settlement and you've got your walls and within your walls, the ruler kind of um, governs, establishes order, life can be somewhat re-established to what it was before you know you're getting your food you've got your power you've got protection you might be able to start um developing other higher forms of civilization or whatever but outside is the world of chaos wilderness um there's the barbarians and the zombies and whatnot and we and we see this dynamic within the older literature too so you know you go outside of um uh, Odin's realm, and what do you find? You have the Jotnar and the monsters who are threatening mm -hmm. to break into Asgard, and eventually at Ragnarok, they will. In the case of St. George, we have this dragon from the ocean, from the sea, that place of danger, which is threatening the civilized place, and it's up to George mm -hmm. to overcome that, subdue it, and thus reestablish order. Whereas in our mm -hmm. kind of cultural system, there are conceptions of good or e good and evil, but there isn't this same. I don't get the impression that mm. the managerial elite really believe in a. Hmm, I, don't, I don't know how quite, quite to put it because they they definitely believe in danger, right? They see mm. they see certain groups as dangerous, right? The mm. the deplorables in America, let's say, or yeah. or you know the. Um, but but they 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 think it can be that they, they don't see kind of the metaphysical danger they don't see the world yes. is divided into the wilderness and the place of safety they think it's yes. all under their governance 
and yes. they just have to root out certain bits within it. And I think that's yeah. a fundamentally mistaken view of civilization. And it's why fundamentally things are crumbling because they, they, they're allowing those kind of dangerous chaotic forces to flourish within the walls of the, the yes. sanctuary uh, yes. rather than seeing it, okay, we need to keep the walls of the sanctuary strong and everything within it strong against what's, what's out there. Well, yes, 100%. You've really articulated the th even the theme of, of St. George. What they are, think, think about it symbolically, is that they're the enemies of St. George. They want to wall, put a wall around St. George, around masculinity and men. And they also want to, they think they can wall the dragon. That's what they think they can do. They are essentially like a uh, petrified Platonism where the techne, they think the techne and the calculation and the quantitative can, can, can predetermine everything. Mm. But that dragon keeps rising underneath. And you see that, right? And what this story of St. George says in its theme is if you don't send out your young men to slay the dragon and then return with the boon, then what happens is, because what happens with the king is, it's the dragon says, I will go if you sacrifice first food to me. And then that's not enough for it. That's not enough for the dragon. So then it says, oh, I want your children. And they sacrifice their children to it. And then it says, no, I want the king's children. And so then they go, ah, oh, the daughter gets put on the line, right? That's too much for the king. But what's that saying is, is that if you don't send out the youth and the children to become heroes, if you don't allow the masculine and the hero to go slay it, that you sacrifice your future. You give to the dragon. And so when you give to the dragon, you're sacrificing your youth and future. That's what it is. That's, that's the theme of it. So and that's, if you try to wall the dragon, it's the same thing, right? If you try to wall it, you try to incorporate it. You can never be incorporated. It is eternal. The unknown's eternal. The only thing that can defeat it is the hero, is the young man that goes out to defeat it. And they hate that young man. They hate it especially the females, the females in the, in the managerial types, right? The feminist types. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. If you've ever been a hierarchy under a woman. It, there's nothing worse unless they're based. And it's very rare that they are. They just, and they hate it up. They hate men. If they're in a hierarchy, they they'll help a young man. They go, Oh yeah, I see. He's just, he's trying to improve himself and do this. Right. Um, that's why we can classify. This as a very feminine dark mother. This, this petrified Platonism, this petrified system, because it has that those features. It's quash it. It's like, no, we don't like this upstart. Whereas a man will go, oh, it's an upstart. Yeah, I see. Yeah, just here you go. Give him a, you know, give him a bit of an opportunity. But yeah, this feminine, dark feminine says, no, you in your place. No heroism. Do what you're told. Right? You'll get your your pesky wages. You get your little commie out. Here's your what was it called? Universal income, and you can eat your slop. You know, but no heroism. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think that relates into what well, I haven't taken that too off topic, hopefully, but it seems to to fit nicely with where we are and what the St. George narrative really articulates. Well, and it is directly a sacrifice of youth in particular, which is which is interesting, sacrificing yeah the future and that which is you know the vital. And you see, I mean, you see that really when you get uh, a society that's in complete spiritual decay it is this tendency of the the old to sacrifice the young mm. i mean you you can kind of see in in many ways how that plays out today mm. you also see that even just in in popular media like in the hunger games they have their reaping ceremony where they 
they select from the children of, yeah. of the districts and they feed people to this beast, but it's the sort of media. They're feeding them to the bread and circuses. Yeah. Well, what, what comes to mind to me is uh, almost like a fear of the unknown as well. So when, when a cost is imposed, then uh, it's almost easier to, within this kind of structure to just accept, okay, well, that, that's the cost for keeping things, keeping things going. Therefore we'll just, uh, we'll just do whatever that is in front of us rather than opening the Pandora's box of, uh, you know, whatever, whatever a great hero might, uh, might decide to do, given the opportunity mm -hmm. and given the encouragement. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. And I, I think um, if you look at like great um, male and female archetypes, so I think of somebody like Galadriel, for example, because, um, you know, she, she is in the, a position of authority, but she elevates, as you say, Scott, it's the elevation, it's the support. Um, and that can take different roles. She takes a very, you know, you've got the dark mother role, but you've also got the the light mother, and she's very much that. I guess Mary, the Virgin Mary is the archetype uh, that we're, we're mm. discussing there. But the dragon is its alternative um, very strongly. The dragon is often identified as this um, brooding mother that must be slain uh, to get mm. um, to, go, to go beyond. We all have that sense of the overbearing um uh, the overbearing mother who doesn't allow the son to to really grow out and be married to to another woman and i think it's quite mm. interesting that uh the um in the george narrative although he doesn't doesn't marry the princess she's displayed uh in bridal clothing to the dragon right so it's the subjugation of the dragon allows being you know to win the bride essentially and not only that but it's her, she she is told by george to put her girdle you know a kind of garment which is associated with with sexuality um over the dragon so it's been totally subordinated by that point um mm. and allows for this kind of flourishing which if, if you wanted to push it further you know well what what does sexuality bring it brings new life and it brings the restoration yes. of the of the community. So you could you could read it in that kind of kind of way. I think the the story. Oh yeah, that, I mean that's mm -hmm. that's the gold of the dragon. You defeat the dragon, it turns into um, boon. The dragon is potential. Mm. So it's also the greatest. That's why you send heroes out to do it. It's the potential to renew. You can't because what does the hero come back with? He slays the dragon. Well, he has to bring back something to renew the what made it arise in the first place. Because what makes yeah. it arise is thinking that you've got the truth, is thinking that your state, which is the problem with, again, the Old Testament religion before Christ came, was this thinking that, oh, the state can solve it. We can get the perfect law, which is what that, that culture tends to, to try breed. It doesn't like the heroism. Heroism is more, again, it's a European thing. It's the Greek thing. It's a, uh, it, and they think they can have, oh, the perfect system to defeat uh, evil. And then they keep doing that. And then Yahweh keeps smashing their city destroying it because they keep thinking that they can invent the perfect system and christ comes to tell them right so the people that deny christ you know that's what's going to keep happening to you if you do um but yeah so our way of being is different it's it's the hero and um yeah it's certainly that theme's very true and you can see that the girdle being put at what's the what's putting something around the neck of something mastering it mm -hmm. i've mastered the unknown i've gone out on the waves which is what, again, I know this is a side tangent, but that's what rule Britannia actually means. Master the waves, master the unknown. 
Britannia rule the waves, right? Which is an English verse. It's not even British. That's a civic thing. But it, really, it's just Englishmen talking about themselves, that song. But anyway, point is, putting the girdle around the neck. That's what it is. You take the life back, the woman back to, to uh, the culture. You might, and you, that, Think about what the princess is. The, the daughter of the king is the greatest reward in the realm. So it's the archetypal reward, right? The gold of the dragon holds the greatest reward. So it's telling both the hero, uh, to, uh, the people that could emulate the hero, they should go out and do that. Um, but yeah, it's all there symbolically. It's, it's not, you're not on a tangent there by saying that's what it means. That's what it means. Um, Nathan, when you were saying that, that's it's just so clear. Um, and, and as you were saying that the girdle is shaming the monster, it's, it's not, you know, treating the evil which has been plaguing the realm. It's not treating it as well. You know, we're going to be respectful to this creature. It's no, we're going to we're going to parade it around for the creature that yeah. it is in its proper place as being the defeated enemy that has been you know, ruining and trashing the kingdom. It's, it's not, you know, oh, we'll just sort of defeat it and, oh, it's a great, it's a, you know, we'll respect the beast for what it is. It's, no, there's no respect shown towards it. Yeah, it's just ours now. It's just, a, it's now our possession, um, which is true. You see this also in Beowulf when he gets the thing that defeats the demon in Beowulf is a sword he finds down there. He doesn't, it's not something he brought with him. It's the sword and it stops glowing and the blade dissolves but he takes back the hilt with him. So the blade's gone. This, this weapon he got from the unknown, right? Which is this dragon that's been uh, girdled, as you say, but it's no longer a dragon. So it says that you've got the thing you took back, you have the hilt, but it will only work to solve that problem. That is the Beowulf thing. Anyway, it'll only work to solve that problem because another dragon's going to rise. That's why it doesn't have a hilt, that doesn't have a blade, when he but he still takes it back. Um, so that tells you that story tells you that, yeah, the dragon's always going to rise again. You haven't solved the problem. It's eternal. And, but I do think the George narrative is more... Because it's very simple, isn't it, this George narrative? It's more archetypal. It's more primordial. It's really, it plays out very quickly. You could just tell it in, what, three minutes. You could tell the whole story, and that's it. You think, oh, there's not much to this. But the reason why you can unpack all this stuff out of it, because it's so primordial and so deep, yeah. Well, and, and the dragon will arise again eventually, but the key thing that separates someone like St. George from a contemporary superhero, and Nathan and I have talked about this a bit before, is that St. George demands something of the people of, of the realm. He demands that they convert. Mm. He demands that they address the evil that's within their own hearts that has led to the cowardice and to the, the sacrifice mm. of their own children. He demands that they address that by converting and baptizing in a way that with modern contemporary superhero genre, like with the heroes that you get today, Superman saves someone, but he puts no demands on the people of Metropolis. You know, Batman mm. goes and beats up the criminals, but he doesn't put any demand on Gotham for them to, to do anything lasting or to earn that victory yes. alongside him. So he pulls, so St. George pulls everything up with him. And yeah, there will yes. be more yes. dragons that will come. That's, uh, in some ways, I think Beowulf is maybe the follow-up story. Beowulf yeah, is what yeah, happens yeah. when these are, these are the inevitable yeah. outside enemies on the fringes of the world that mm. are less, less a consequence of the, the lack of brave men in Hererot. 
but are more of a consequence of just being on the fringes of the world, and you're always going to have existential threats. Yeah, I, th I think too with the Marvel superheroes is that yeah they come back and they just they they band aid the, the degenerate filth society and let it go on, right? Whereas Robin Hood is a radical conservative, a radically conservative external order, right? He's fighting same with St George in a way because he's Christian. He's that he, that's his order, and he's coming in and saying you're degenerate filth. You need to <laughs> convert. That's what's caused this problem. Robin Hood in the same way. He's, he's got the, the soul of England within that these people have walked away from, but not everyone because it's, you've got the, the, the lords that, which we could consider conservative aristocrats come to his aid, right? And the king, come, the king just doesn't know what's under him has been corrupted. So when Robin Hood, he does a similar thing is that he, he comes in and destroys and defeats the uh, middle managers. The sheriff kills the sheriff uh, kills the, the corrupt fake priests, all this middle under the king, um, and reforms that. And that needs to happen, right? And it's not all yeomen, it's not all people, but heroic ones that rise up that have popular support are supposed to come in. And th this bloody degenerates need to be reformed by these radical conservative, or not conservative, radically traditional moral, moral forces that realize it, which is what we're doing, because English heritage and places like that are completely corrupted and degenerate need to be reformed by things like what we're doing today because who else is going to do it it's just us it's just the people on the new right that are, you know, are willing to actually properly articulate and stand up for it but yeah 100 agree with you there um nord huger um on that reforming we don't ask anything about you know oh no you can whatever you can do in your own home is fine with me you, you know we say that oh this is very liberal way of saying oh this way of are you whatever degeneracy, pedophilia, get up to, or whatever it is, in your own home, oh, that's okay, as long as you don't bring it into, no, maybe it's not okay, and you need to stop sinning. Anyway. Well, I, I think we can see the the situation in, in this way with, with the story of St. George, in that the dragon, in a sense, you know, we, we were talking about the English anarchy, so he's like a, um, a robber band who is... Uh, you know, exploiting, tyrannizing a town. And the king is essentially the bad ruler. He, he, the people and the king do not show the courage that is required to take on this threat. They appease it. They try to appease it. And the king himself is shown as indecisive because he allows the situation to arise that it's by lot that the person is chosen. It's not, he, you know, he doesn't, he's not proactive in dealing with the situation. Then when it comes to his own daughter, he tries to get out of it by trying to bribe everybody in the community. And this is a recurring theme. I think when we see, when we read the Golden Legend, he seems obsessed with, with giving people money. He, under, he tries to, to give St. George at the end of the story as much money as he wants. And the way that he thinks about his daughter, he's sad because he will not get to see her become, um, you know, married. It's not, it's not because she's going to the dragon. It's that he might lose the advantage of a beneficial marriage for, his, for him and for his rule. So, so the, there is this sense in which he's totally um, consumed by greed and he's a cowardly individual. And that allows for the exploitation of the community by, by the dragon. Whereas St. George, he is the embodiment of chivalry. He's courageous and his courage comes from his faith in christ uh, I, I think it was mentioned earlier that before he charges in he makes the cross of christ he says to with his sword 
he says to the princess, you know, there's no reason to doubt because I, I will help you in the name of Christ. And then he subdues the dragon, demands, demands change. And then finally at the end, when the king tries to reward him, he refuses it. And he says, you know, actually you should be giving that to the poor and you should be listening to the priests and following their instructions. So he sets the king on the right path. It's this, um, it's this liberality of uh, and generosity of spirit, which is um, belongs to the knight, should also belong to the right to the ruler as well, uh, Rupert. And oh yeah, yeah. I was, I was just going to say. It's, so it's not just you. You mentioned the greed of the king, but it's not just mm. greed. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say because he's also willing to you know just sort of give away, give away money in in order to try and make the uh, make the problem go away. Um, mm. I think there's probably something else going on here and in, in that it's a it's a very distinct mindset that we probably recognize quite uh, quite widely here in that you know especially in the modern day in that it's uh what's it called online um spreadsheet brain excel brain you know just trying to like reduce everything to some kind of like uh finance some, some financial or just like quantitative measure and then you calculate everything on a, on a spreadsheet and you're so okay, yeah. For, for example, you see you see it in business all the time, where there's just an attempt always to just try and get rid of risk, get rid of all risk possible, mm, yeah. even if it means yeah. just throwing throwing infinite money at the problem. Uh, I just don't want to deal with whatever this question mark is going to uh, is going to potentially do to me. So, it's mm. yeah, it's it's not just greed; it's a particular kind of like uh, spirit that we see incredibly prevalent prevalent in the present day, um, but evidently is a fair bit older. He he yeah, just he understands house. every it, it's longhouse. And he he understands every relationship as just transactional. There's no nothing deeper than that binding people together. Even his own daughter, it's a transactional relationship of, oh, can I trade her for a good political mm -hmm. alliance? There's, it's um, an instrumental view of human value, with no yeah. sense of, oh, actually, uh, other people have an independence and integrity, and I should cultivate that and elevate that. Uh, it's what, how can I use and what can I get out of somebody else? So when you meet somebody like, say, George, who doesn't operate on that uh, kind of worldview at all, who does things because they are noble and good, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he, he just, it's not that he doesn't expect any reward. He actually refuses reward for those noble acts. Mm. Yeah. This is just totally uh, beyond the comprehension of this, of this king um yes but but the saint george's hope i suppose is that through his baptism and by commanding him to do good deeds like giving the money to the poor by listening to and supporting the priests in their administration of christianity that this king will be directed back to where he ought to be and mm. his mind hopefully expanded i mean we never know right we don't find out afterwards what happens to the town but I guess that's he's the noble knight can can direct the the errant the ruler in error back towards his proper course without this yeah but, because the system thinks that the dragon plays game theory in a way right mm. is that the dragon of the unknown is not uh, it can't be it's combinatorially explosive you cannot map it with your game theory and eventually and this is going on rupert's point about quantitative right you can't it's combinatorially explosive and the only thing that works against it ultimately are our symbolic categories right using our heuristics of the and the divine because these are things that we've worked out 
that uh, that map it in a way that has allowed humanity to to fight this thing if it sends out the individual if that individual is you know connected to the transcendent that has that has it that that has gone that individual has gone on an initiation right that is has a higher being than a quantitative thing that thinks it can apply a covering theory of mathematics to nature and we must remember that that's all these things ever are these quantitative systems they're only ever covering systems and we see this with quantum mechanics right is that the unknown keeps manifesting and you can't defeat this dragon and it keeps rising yeah and when you, whenever you see a painting of a dragon this this great dragon creature and you see a man on a horse you see the knight on the horse and you think okay the dragon has giant claws the dragon has scales that are hard to penetrate the dragon possibly even breathes fire and is giant and can just steamroll like whenever you look at the painting the the odds if you were to just look at it on a chart and you were to be this sort of bean counter you'd be like all right well you know the odds are probably 100 to 1 that the dragon wins and you have to think as well in the mind of the knight the knight, if he's somewhat intelligent, is probably thinking, actually, I probably will just get annihilated by this dragon, mm. at least through my own strength. And so the mindset and the spirit of the knight has to be one of martyrdom. It has to be saying, mm. I probably will get incinerated in this. I probably will mm. get speared. But being willing to say... You know, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do that to charge the dragon. It's a it's a very different type of very different type of mind to put it because the the knight doesn't know if he's going to win. Mm. Yeah, dude, you're right. I think that we need to see this and understand it for a modern day on the new right. What's going on is that the calculative game theory mind is not going to overcome this thing because as as Nord you, you just said is that the dragon it's hundred to one that they're going to win. It's the zeal and conviction you get from, hopefully, a second religiousness. Uh, and this isn't me saying it cynically either. I mean, we need plan trusters and true believers. And I think, ultimately, these things are true. And you can, for people that are full-on hyper-rationalist, you can work your way into this way of thinking. You can, if you haven't, you're not a good thinker. If you can't convert yourself into at least an idealism and then go back if you want to, if you can't do that, convert yourself into that way of thinking, even Christianity, uh, then you're, 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 I think you're a failed philosopher. You need to have at least had both. Get your perspectival knowledge into both, right? I'm just saying for people that reject this idea, right? This idea that the non-calculated thinking, the non-logic thinking is actually needed to defeat this thing. And the symbolic and the heuristics and these way of beings that aren't left brain, that are right brain, these right brain ways are the things that defeat it. Yeah, because... The dragon never will get defeated if, unless you have someone who is willing to die. The mm. dragon is always, there's always going to be someone yes. saying, well, you know, the odds are maybe 60%, 70, 80% that I die. I'm not going to do it. You know, we need to, we need to calculate mm. some other solution. You need, you need the man who's willing to say, all right, win or lose, I'm going for this. Yeah, I was mm. going to say, there's, uh, you could perhaps even go a step further and say that it's not necessarily even about uh, considering death and being willing willing to accept death. It is uh, doing a doing a duty that is in front of you without mm. heed to the consequences. Mm. Yeah, for the sake, for its own sake, and that's where the Northern European yes. comes in for the, for its own sake, because that's unique to us, where 
the will for its own sake, martial will in the sake of defeat and apocalypse for its own sake, which means it's the highest good, right? For obviously when God come, when Christianity comes along, it, it lowers in the hierarchy, but that's very high for us. What Rupert said, this, I'm going out for its own sake. I know I'm dead. I'm just going out for its own sake. That's just, because we've got to think what is for the sake of. It's, it's something of the way that your world is filled in. It fills in what you're, everything you're concerned with. So if your cosmology is like that, you just will naturally do that. Whereas it seems to us like, a why would we do that? It's, not, it's a non-calculative way of thinking as well. Because that's not what you would do in game theory. You're trying to survive. But yeah, it's just for its own sake is very different than doing it for the sake of something else. Is that what you mean, Rupert? You're saying it's for just for its own sake. It's just this yeah. is just what we do. We are Northern European. We for its own sake because this is a good to sacrifice myself in battle, not even for the savior of the village. It's simply just because of it on its own. No, no, it's it's not even not even the sacrifice. It is the the confronting and fighting of the dragon. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether yeah. you die or win in the process. You you do your yeah. duty to fight the dragon because it is your duty to do it. It's despite not to wonder why, city, despite the city, in a way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's not to I wonder why. It's only to do and die. Mm. That's right. That's that's the Faustian, ultimately Faustian thing. It's not for yours to wonder why. It's for you to do or die. Hundred percent. We're all on the same wave, wavelength on this one. Because um, it's hard for people to get that, to understand, no, no, it's just for its own sake. It's not for the village. It's not doing it for the village. The Northern European thing is, uh, it's, just, it's just something that seems to drive us. And I, I sort of think this is related to all sorts of other values, which I won't take this on a tangent talking about them. But yeah, even Protestant work ethic, there, I think that's, that's related to this bleakness, this for its own sakeness of work. It doesn't feel right unless you're losing. So you are sort of working for your own apocalyptic destruction in a way, right? You work yourself to death. There's a way we sort of do that, that Northern Europeanness. Um, but well, there's, there's for a, sake. Yeah, there's a sense in which it can be taken too far because we've, uh, you know, in a, in a previous uh, show, we've, we've talked about Merry England as a, as a counterbalance to this. But uh, mm. you can possibly go too far in either, in either direction. Um, but yes, there, there is definitely that sense in which you... Um, all, all these different qualities are done for their own sake. And to take it back to uh, the point that we were making, another point that we were making earlier, slightly more briefly, um, there's an anecdote about this. I can't remember which island it was, but there was an island in the uh, the Atlantic which was encountered by numerous different uh, different peoples, and uh, they just sort of stopped off, had a look around, saw that it was a completely barren um, clump of rocks, basically in the middle of nowhere that had but had almost no significance at all. Uh, but then the Englishman arrived. And he decided to turn it into a garden, yeah. not not for any explicit purpose, just yeah. sort of because because he could and because he saw it as the right thing to do. So he turned this completely desolate, barren wasteland again into something that was lush and not even for any overt purpose. I think there's something uniquely English in that the garden thing because it's related to the island and the borders being established. And I, I can I can make a case for this quite easily. Is that on the continent the wolves were raiding uh, Paris up till 1916? Right, 60 people were killed in Paris, the wolves. We killed the wolves, every wolf in England in 1200, all killed. So the Greenwood, the garden, becomes a place not of danger, but of boom, of garden. That's why Robin Hood goes to the Greenwood. Whereas when you look to these continental legends, the forest is the, ooh, that's where the witch is, right? It just changes on England after we destroy it. We make it this, 
it's a place where the yeoman can go outside of the social contract, sort of go to have a sense of the moral order, I suppose. But yeah, I think that really, really is a way of articulating what Rupert's talking about as a unique English thing that has a long, long development too. Uh, so yeah, killing every wolf is a big, big part of that. There's no bear, European bears, no wolves. And there's there's propaganda posters to pr prove this. There's German World War One propaganda posters that show the wolf, uh, the wolf uh, killing people, pulling them out of trenches, and various things that they happened. Wolves came and ate soldiers who were uh, already shot and wounded on the battlefield, and they're screaming while these wolves are uh, chewing them to death. There was an incident in uh, on the Eastern Front in World War One where um, I think it was the Bulgarians and the Russians or something. Um, I, I can't remember who it was. Um, had to they basically had to have a truce uh, to fight off the wolves because the wolves were just killing <laughs> killing so many soldiers in the in the trenches that yeah. it was it was enough of a threat to both sides that they had to sort of uh, you know call it off for a a few days or whatever it was to in order to actually survive the uh, survive the night. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Sorry, jump in, someone. <laughs> well, I I was uh, I I I, th I think uh, as well, you know. We, we have to bear in mind as well that this land is is the perfect kind of land for for the gentle garden right it's it's it you go to some places in the world maybe like uh, South America and you get the most zany plants and the they they're amazing tropical uh, creatures but they're not very uh, appropriate for human beings they, they they end up supporting life which is aimed at killing everyone Um or if you go to other places in the world, they they, they are not in they do not have the same kind of um, mixture of rain and sunshine. The the rather broadly uh, the 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 landscape is not mountainous enough for it to be a problem either. There there is mm. a there's a a kind of climate here which allows the growth of gentle plants. Uh, which mm. can be tilled and stewarded, and then either for decoration or for or for your, for use. And I, I think it's that um, bond with the land, which then gets carried around the world. And yeah. I mean, you could call it a kind of terraforming of various places into that yeah. old England. But that that is it, it's that relationship we have with the land, which I guess I'm saying the land makes it possible to have that kind of attitude as well. Um, beyond just our like our spirits are reacting yes. and formed by that it has a reciprocal uprising it's in the country as we know it becomes sanctified for one thing but it's mm -hmm. not just it's not just a place uh, that's the walled city still as you say yeah it's also a place where sport is done so it's actually a place mm. of training the cavalry is trained fox hunting happens that began as a cavalry training uh, before the Napoleonic Wars or during the Napoleonic Wars. That's why you're part of the red costume is connected to that. So it's a place where you train before you go to the wild or before you go on expedition. But it's also, like we say, it's, it's sanctified too. These practices of fox hunting become a part of a deep tradition that reflects even, uh, uh, they are supposed, to, as we see in the Green Knight, it's supposed to be a uh, like a church service. The, f the first recorded fox hunt in the Green Knight shows they hold a sermon before they go on the fox hunt and they have they go through this procedure and at the end of it they have a thing they lift the the sword which is a symbol of the civilization and defeating the wild creature so it's a practice that you keep doing so the dragon doesn't rise so you slay the you go and practice cavalry practice you slay the fox 
uh, which is you slay the fox so the wolves don't come back is how I put it when I talk about fox hunting because to do something like that to break down your uh, inauthentic being which is what builds up in our ideas of things we think we know everything that's inauthentic being where we think oh that's just calculation it's just this is a, a atom particle and that's just a tree you know that stale knownness of a location you get when you're in a place you've been for many years you can break down that with practices like fox hunting and get to authentic being behind it so that's a practice that brings you towards the wild i suppose you could say but it's half half it's a garden it's very different it's reciprocally uprising like nathan talked about and it is something that spreads everywhere and really <laughs> if we weren't so soft when all these people like <laughs> Oh, I don't, know, I don't want to make this too political, but all these people like uh, Native Americans or, or whatever, these places saying, oh, Native rights are all that. We would just say, no, we conquered this. And now it's, it's a garden of England. F you. Nothing for you. You know what I mean? You can be a citizen, but no, none of this wokeness. You don't get to any extra thing on top of that. We just say that we're now this is now an extension of England because that's kind of what happened. The garden was planted in these places and they would have had nothing if that garden wasn't planted there. Right. Because were they not successful? Could you not say it? We did. Ex they were reasonably successful in extending England to these places that they did a good job in. What do you think about that? Well, and to go to that point, when you take a place like New England, let's say, it, it is still very much you get this extension of England, but it's in a very different climate. It is a much less moderated climate, pretty much everywhere in the sort mm. of Yankee strip of America. The summers get blazing hot and the winters get much colder than you get in most of Scandinavia, mm. like mu much colder really? for long stretches of time. Yeah. And it's because you don't have the moderation of the Atlantic. Provide I mean, the Atlantic is still there, but the currents don't flow in such a way that you get this moderating weather influence. So you still see, I mean, even today in a lot of North American fiction and imagination and sort of like cryptid reports of the forest, the forest and the woods are still very much this place of where the wolves and the unknown and the uncharted and the, the creatures which sort of lie between scientific reality and the paranormal. That's where it all lies is in the woods. And there's still the love of nature here, but it's still even to a large extent in the places where it hasn't been paved over with a Walmart parking lot in those places which are still wild and have been unkempt for thousands of years, those woods are still very much a place of unease and a place of mm. that which has yet to be cultivated. Because it's a hard, in yeah. America, it's a harsh dichotomy between, okay, here's yeah. a patch of land that has never been developed once in the history of humankind. Like you mm. find a patch of woods in America that has never once had, I mean, there, there were natives and tribesmen who would go through it, but by and large, that land has never once been cultivated. So yeah. where you find these patches of land, it's still this hyper-wild territory right next to hyper-modernity where you have the, the parking garage and the concrete and you have the McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's definitely un-English. I wouldn't say... I'd say that it's definitely in our primordial memory about how to do it. Um, but the Europeans, like we do say... It's pretty wild in Scandinavia. It's pretty pretty harsh place. It, would have, it certainly would have been uh, quite late. And like we said, there were wolves and stuff. So they were well, well equipped to... Yeah, like my... This would be on my... 
father's side in Sweden going back about 150 years or not, not even, it would be about like 120 years. They, there's still some stories in my family of how they would, they would go to church in the winter and they would be on their, on their sleigh or on their, uh, they would have their, the, they would be on their sleigh and they'd be going to church and they would have wolves like chasing them, running through the forest. <laughs> they're just trying to get to church and they'd have to like try yeah. to fight them off or if they got too close. Wow. I do think, though, that well, the, the, there's uh, kind of two things I I, I wanted to say, and what one of them is that if you look at like the great national parks in America, um, there's a there's a fellow called John Muir, who came from uh, Scotland, but quite close to the border with England, um, and he 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 was very important in basically protecting a lot of these places from um, industrialization. Uh, mm. Preserving, like, so the the Yosemite National Park, that's like Yosemite, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, that one too. Um, Yosemite. <laughs> sorry, who cares? We know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Go on. Um, but but like these places too, they're wild places, but they're conserved, right? So it's still part of a garden in a sense because if there if there wasn't like the wall and there wasn't like um, various environmentalists who were kind of watching the ecosystem and trying to push the ecosystem in certain ways to make it still flourish within the current world it would be gone so so even even the a, a lot of these wild places require that kind of conservationism which is comes from that that spirit yeah. I, I i think so sorry go ahead scott because uh, we'll come to my other point later Oh, sorry, man. I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's no, I, no, I quickly okay. tried to throw it back to you. Um, but yeah, I was just going to say that the frontier spirit, it comes from the English borderlands as well. Is that these mm -hmm. people were, it's not something new in America. It's the, the folk ways of America come from uh, Britain, right? So this idea that oh, it was the frontier that formed them, that's a late thesis. Uh, the borderlanders who were, the, as we know, that's where Nathan is from, uh, up in the borderlands with mutual descent right up there in Durham. These people were savages, right? They were, but they were sort of had a procedural thing that was very old at the same time, right? They're very more Viking-like. They're very more, they have an old way of being, yet it's a savage way of being. They were well prepared for the borderlands. And these are the, uh, the Appalachians. These are the people that are sent to the, to the frontier. They, they particularly even say, oh, we'll send those people. The Quakers said, we'll send these guys to here and put them between us and the Indians, right? So it was a distinct thing. They knew that these people were well-suited to it. Um, and so it's not something that's unknown in Britain, um, that, that way of being. It's pretty fresh, at least from the wars, uh, to fight Indians, even if there weren't wolves and such. The, the soft southerners might not have known it as well. Um, they certainly understood hierarchy. I'm a big fan of the... They're my two favorites, the Appalachians and the Virginians, which are, which are uh, that went there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that well, you probably had emergent features too. I don't want to discount new American things adding to it, but certainly the, that power of that warrior spirit was with them when they went, the Appalachians and the, yeah. Well, and, and I didn't mean to imply earlier that the, the hypermodernity, the Walmarts, the parking lots, all that, I didn't mean to imply that that is an extension of English, of English oh, no, character, yeah, yeah. Or the, yeah, yeah I'm, I, that's more of kind of its own, its own separate thing. But yeah, it it is kind of the the English because the further east you are in America, that is the more settled, the more tended, 
you, know, you go to some of these old old towns in, in New England or so, they're they're much better. They're much more garden-like. Whereas the farther west you go, that's where it's a bit more sprawling. It's a bit more mm. chaotic. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, at least from my reading, that makes sense. Um, I haven't spent any time out there, but um, I've been on the coastal cities. But yeah, from the accounts, they, they, it seems like a really beautiful place. That uh, Kentucky, these middle regions. Um, yeah, it, they, were, they took a long time to settle those places. Um, so it was a brutal, brutal thing, but very wild. It still is, you know, wild in many ways, but also there is a lot of modernity uh, connected in. But that's where they still are. If you want to go to a place where you see uh, the Anglo-Saxon, the Northern European, you'll see them in Utah and places like that. I'm not sure where you are right now. Um, probably where you Minnesota. are. Minnesota. I've seen you in snow, right? Oh, Minnesota, right. Yeah. So, Snowy. yeah, no, I would say, I mean, Midwest, you get, I mean... Midwest, everyone says Midwest and they mean a different region, but I find that, you know, the so-called flyover country of America is where you have, at least where I, I feel most at home. I, I love kind of the, the small town culture. There's just something, there's just something very, very at ease about it all. And just the, the friendliness that you get with the small towns that you don't get elsewhere. Um, mm. Not as many... But again, once you get to kind of the region of the country I'm in, you get a much heavier German influence. You get a lot of Irish. You get Scandinavians up north where I am, but then, you know, you get, you get a heavier amount of German that kind of outweighs the English. So you really have to go kind of further south or you have to go further east or further west to get back to the, the more particular Englishness. Mm. I was just thinking, um, it's quite curious that you mentioned uh, Virginia as well earlier, uh, because mm. Virginia was another another place that drew heavily from the borderlands, but it was the uh, it was the Welsh marches instead of more, more so than the, uh, the Scottish marches. And some of the same culture, I suspect, still existed. But uh, to my knowledge, it's it, the, the warfare was a little bit different, a little bit less um, gentlemanly. Yeah, they probably so, sent a... So, no, you're, no, well, I was going to say, so, so Cheshire in particular was absolutely despoiled to the extent that uh, I think as late as the, uh, I want to say 14th century, possibly a, possibly a little bit earlier than that, 30, 13th century, definitely, it was still, it was still basically, uh, you know, pretty much just desolated and only being su su um, sustained by new, uh, new colonists from other regions, basically. Yeah, that... Um... Wessex essentially is where that Virginian and what, like you said, there was people sent from uh, Wales as well. My guess would be they sent those Welshmen to the back country of Virginia, which is essentially where the frontier is. Whereas a lot of the hierarchy uh, people, they're, they're the hierarchy respecters. They're my favorite uh, the types of Americans. Um, well, they, they also I did. Think it, they also did uh, deliberately, like much more deliberately, take from the uh, the royalist aristocracy and the yes. the Welsh uh, the Welsh marches region, sort of sort of on both sides was, um, you know, on both sides of the border. The Mon border was um, very, very royalist. Yeah, you see over time that area is very always conservative. When these revolutions are happening, that Wessex area, the west of the country, says, no, we're with the king, we're with the thing. It's always these the more, maybe that's to do with the continent, I don't know. It's the Essex uh, area, the, the Anglia. Anglia is more, seems to go with the revolution, I suppose you could say. That's where the Puritans were, so that makes sense there as well. But yeah, these, these Cavaliers uh, were very Chad, and it's almost a shame that they didn't win out 
um, forget the slavery thing. Let's just put that aside. That's just an unfortunate thing that was defeated by them anyway. By put that aside, but the hierarchy, the idea of having an appropriate yeoman, a hierarchy, and an appropriate uh, aristocracy that someone can rise in. That would have been perhaps today would be in much better position if it hadn't have been the egalitarian Puritan way of being that took ended up taking over with their progressiveness. If it had have been the Southern way, yeah, where you have this hierarchy and you have this uh, thing people are going to ascend that's more permanent, it has these things like uh, mythos and various things, uh, perhaps a king because they were on the side of the king too. These Virginians, uh, these yeah. elites were they supported. They were fighting the revolution, and even parts uh, people that signed the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, said this: "Is that we're doing this against the elite Parliament, but for the sake of that, we want the king to rule us." That's what a lot of these people. Uh, the reason why they did it to begin with, rather than to you know for a, rep a republic to begin with. Yeah, trying to overthrow the Whig dominance, and the idea was floated yeah. that they would uh, they would accept the Stuart Pretender. Yeah. Right, I didn't know that. That's really that suits my theory about it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, <laughs> they they invited they invited the Stuart Pretender, but um, well, yeah, he wanted to shoot for the whole thing rather than uh, rather than just having a, a breakaway part of the uh, yeah. of the whole Commonwealth that it uh, that he was looking for. Wow. I I I did want to return to to one point that you made, Scott. That. You know, you were talking about the Native Americans, and I, I think um, I, I don't want to go too much into it, but I, because it, it's a lot more complicated than it's often portrayed, like the 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 simple Native Americans living in harmony with nature. Well, <laughs> well, like the Navajo start in Alaska and come down to Arizona, and the Pueblo people, uh, you know, their oral history basically says, yeah, they these guys like took our culture, took our land, and tried to make it their own. Um, but, uh, like, uh, I, I didn't, I, I at least respect the idea of like, um, like, the, like the garden was made, but they, they reject it because like, they feel that's their land. And I kind of feel like we get that in the sense, like our garden is being taken from us. So I can, yeah. I can see that idea there. I, I, I understand it. Even if I don't think it's like, if you look at the history, it's not quite right. But I, I, th I think also you could see, like, um, in the mythologies we were talking earlier of, like, a primordial age before the garden gets built in all of these different places. Like, Britain has that with the, the Brutus story as mm. well. And uh, whether or not there is this kind of idea that there are civilizations which do have this... They're more identified with nature and all of its wildness and live in that wildness... Mm. Mm. Um, and then there are other kind of civilizations like the English one that we're talking about, which tries to, to build the garden and that these two will come into conflict. Um, mm. you know, no matter how hard you try to put the two together, they're kind mm. of two ways of being, two modes of being that, um, are fundamentally irreconcilable. Mm. Yeah, perhaps that's possibly true but i think if you're going to have some sort of uh, grievance victim culture it doesn't matter who the native native was i mean but the truth of the matter is is that no all you were genociding each other in your own tribal wars another english an english tribe turned up and defeated you and planted england there you lost 
you can now be a part of New England, New England, right? Or you can, well, I don't know, you can keep fighting the war. But because we're so soft in victim culture, and we offer them, you're offering a people citizenship in your own country. Most other places would have just wiped them out completely, right? Mm. So if we had been more chat about it, even in, say, Canada, Canada's the same thing, is that we go, oh, French, oh, we'll allow you to keep speaking your language. We'll allow, and look what's happened in Canada now with the separatism and all that. What really probably should have happened is you go, no, you're speaking English now. You're English or you can go, right? You know, I'm, just, I'm not mm. saying we do it now. I'm just saying that if you were more Chad, you'd say, yes, you're welcome to be a citizen of this country. We won. That's the narrative now. You're now this, you know, but so you have a situation where it's just perpetuated. So, but that's, that's of course something that if you said this on GB news or anywhere that you'd just be attacked by every leftist or whatever. So they'll never say it, um, say it like that. But that's the truth of it is that you lost it's, but we're going to lose because we have this self flagellation. Now this victim flagellation where we'll allow it to go on while we're still the majority. Right. So could you say they've got a claim as the native because they're there first? Not really if you lost, but we're allowing it. You only have a claim because we're allowing it, right? Um, because you lost the, the battle for the place. It hasn't been that long, I given, but so you can say the battle's still going on. But with England, it's a lot longer for one thing. So there's a much greater claim we have because as you articulated in one of your tweets, Nathan, is that Navajo came down in the year 1400 or something. Mm-hmm. Right, that's right. Yeah, Whereas we've been in England for thousands of years, thousand whatever years, uh, uh, you know, a long time. So that's a people, and it's uh, it's a much longer period of time. Also, we're the majority, um, but if we don't make sure, we're going to be in their position if we don't if we don't do something about it. But yeah, yeah. Well, it, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. I was just I was just going to say it's a it's. It's a situation that I don't have any good answers for because, I mean, there, there are so many, there's so many levels to look at it on. And on one hand, the, the true level of brutality that was inflicted upon the settlers and the, and the colonists who came to America is something that's very, very often just tucked away, not in the history books. I mean, there are stories of how... Um, colonists would be tortured in the most horrendous ways that the civilians, you know, have their eyelids, eyelids like cut open and they'd just be like disemboweled, staring at the sun as they would slowly die. Like just horrendous, horrendous stuff. But on the other hand, too, I think in, in the interest of just sort of preserving the, the variety of, of ways of life and more ancient ways of life, there, there is something that very much was lost with the sort of corralling of, of the natives into, into very narrow strips of land. I think there's something, there is something that does sadden me very deeply about that. And, and I understand from the perspective of, of a native, you know, they've been, they've been genociding each other and doing horrendous things to each other for thousands and thousands of years and migrating all around and haven't always been in the same stable locations. Well, on the other hand, you know, if, if you do see an Englishman who's this other tribe, there's still something categorically very different about the Englishman that is, in a sense, alien. So, you know, if I was native, which I'm not, but if I was, I, I could, I could, I, I can at least feel and see the way in which that would be, 
that would be this profound feeling of displacement and of, of takeover. That being said, how many, as you were saying, how many people would, how many other, other groups and tribes and nations of the world would even give a second thought to, you know, the consideration of, of, of the, the concerns that natives have? I mean, how many would just be like, oh, you're upset about this? Oh, well, who cares? We're just going to wipe you all out down to the last man, woman, and child. That, that's the norm throughout all of human history until very, very recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's a profound it's a profound change to even consider that at all. That's that's a, like a paradigm paradigmatic shift in how civilizations treat each other. That that's pretty much wholly new on the world stage for mm. a group like the English to even even consider that. I mean, the, it, I mm. would be hard pressed to think that that would be reciprocal. Should it have been the natives yeah. coming to England, and it is this degree to which we can say, you know. Conquering is sort of its own set of rules and it's its own set of how civilizations play themselves out. And also it is to say, okay, well, we see, we see the spiritual state that Native Americans are in today. We see the, the, the state of what happens when you are displaced. And this is even in a situation where you get at least a certain level of conciliatory mercy and you get a certain level of art, we're still going to let you have your own territory. Whereas what we see with a lot of Europe today is, you know, I think we need to look very long and hard and say, all right, this is the spiritual state of Native Americans. This is the state of their being as nations today and how, how hollowed out it's been. Think of how much worse that, think of how much worse that situation could be for us should we let it get mm. to that point? Because there won't be mm. there won't be the Englishman who's trying to, you know, make a deal or be reasonable. There is none of that on the other end. Yes, that's so true, man. Is that do you think that the the, the Islamists are going to have no? <laughs> There's going to be none of that. It's going to be over. So you bet. People need to realize how bad it's going to get, and they're going to. I think the revolutionary spirit will start to rise when the working conditions and the economic conditions. Uh, of resources start to dwindle, then you're going to see people starting to recognize that. But also what you said there, Nord Huge, I'll just make this point quickly and let someone else jump in. But yeah, there is a point to be made too about the pluralist nature. I mean, I don't, I do want to see, I want Japan to be Japan. You know, now all the places have been discovered and such. I want to see Japan be Japan, even though modernism has taken over most anything anyway. I want to see what comes out of their culture. I don't want to conquer them, right? We've got our native lands. I just want the people out of the native lands that are trying to change it into something else you know in america i don't know what you do with america we can't really talk about that can you uh who, who, there's nothing to be done really but yeah i pluralist there is something to that i do want to see them have a place and evolve somewhere but still are they evolving even with all the stuff that's going on with modernism is it too late for that these native cultures are they doing anything in their one direction does mul- does this mass communication take that option away to some degree i don't know I, I yeah, kind of go back and forth on that particular question, uh, if only because um, sometimes you see you see like rumblings that are just barely below the surface. Uh, if you pay attention to, uh, especially a particular culture for long enough, and you kind of see how much there is lip service being paid to the, uh, the monoculture, where underneath there's uh, there's certain things bubbling and certain resentments, especially mm-hmm. in Japan. Japan seems like a really good example of that, where all of these different people, especially in uh, in sort of like elite circles, have very uh, very particular, very um, 
unacceptable beliefs uh, that are not allowed to be espoused, particularly publicly, but uh, mm. it still has a sort of subtle effect on, on policy here and there. And you can almost see the writing on the wall that the moment the moment the eye of Sauron isn't on them anymore, then a lot, whole lot of things come back into play that uh, haven't been seen for a long time. Tell us more about that, please. That's, can, you, can you tell us more about it? That's just very interesting. Just oh, well, uh, things that, I mean, uh, it's, well, to, to sort of be more um, <laughs> explicit about it, basically there's, there's like a, a whole lot of people in uh, various business, business circles, especially, who uh, have sympathies that are you know basically imperial, imperial japan they kind of want imperial japan back in a lot of ways um there's a, like a lot of uh, a lot of fondness for that period and a lot of attempts to rehabilitate uh, and like present alternate histories i remember there was one there's one fa very famous yeah there's very there's very one famous uh well there's one very famous hotel chain where uh i don't know if they still do this but they used to give a copy of this particular japanese history uh in every room and it was you know basically like full pro-Japanese revisionism to the yeah. utmost degree. And you kind oh, of... We... And, and there's certain other things as well, like so the... I'm going back to the, the stream that I was having uh, quite recently. The the Black Dragon Society is one of like the big arch enemies. They were, they were like the archetypal evil Japanese uh, like secret society entity that America was like dead set on rooting out. And they, they used that <laughs> as the example for like and it, wow. it was explicit in the wording of anything like this needs to be banned. Anything like the Black Dragon Society needs to be banned. Wow. And they got refounded in 2008. Wow. We need this. We need a black, we need the St. George Black Dragon version of it, right? This is a based, based nationalists, right? Wow. You Red it. and white dragon. Yeah. You, you so said, there's a lot of wealth behind this, right? There's, you're saying yeah. businessmen. So there's this. Okay. Wow. I wish the Yakuza, a lot of the Yakuza are on the side with this as well. Yeah, wow. That's interesting. The underworld. There's so much potential in that. I see this with England, that if we could get that with the football hooligan societies, like the underworld on side with our vanguard, right? Because that's kind of what you've got. You've got the thugs, uh, the Yakuza, and the vanguard. Really? Oh, you actually, we, wow, we actually sort of have a vision of, uh, of what, that would, what that would look like. Really? So in, in like the alternate, the alternate timeline, essentially, where the government doesn't have like an, om omni, an omni focus on trying to crack down on... Uh, on football yeah. hooliganism is in a lot of ways it looks it looks like the ukrainian right because the ukrainian right kind of evolves out of in part in large part out of uh especially the i think it was the eastern uh the eastern ukrainian football hooligan hooliganism scene mm -hmm. centered around like wow. uh, kharkov fc and places like that wow i mean it's worth looking at all these case studies but also finding out ways to not get gladio nationalismed cia stuff right because ukraine is i guess that got turned into gladio nationalism by the cia because they're monitoring it i suppose in ukraine eventually yeah so you, yeah you just you want to you want the base japanese version that's that's keeping itself sustained powerful despite the eye of sauron uh, than the ukraine one although there might be definite new things you could take from the ukraine one uh based on that hooliganism that sort of thing right because um, you need those things melded together, as uh, Bowden talks about that sort of. And this is so off topic, <laughs> but it's interesting. It's fascinating to me, anyway. For hopefully, the people watching as well. Um, but yeah, Bowden talks about that: is that we need to be both uh, high culture, but at, have uh, thug strength and be comfortable with violence, which just means you need to be trained. Because men are warriors fundamentally and should be trained. I, th I think maybe to to bring it. 
back round to St. George somehow is that um, what what we see with, with St. George is um, he brings together that thug strength with the compassion of the chivalric knight. And I... I I, I, probably about three hours ago, I said I was going to read a passage from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to read it now. <laughs> yes. I... And I probably sent us on this like long ass tangent. Yeah, sorry, go. Please read <laughs> no, it. No, no, please don't apologize. I'm going to read it because I think it 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 taps into a lot of the different themes that we've been talking about. Uh, so he writes, the important thing about the ideal of chivalry is, of course, the double demand it makes on human nature. The knight is a man of blood and iron. A man familiar with the sight of smashed faces and ragged stumps of lopped off limbs. He is also a demure, almost a maiden-like guest in hall, a gentle, modest, unobtrusive man. He is not a compromise or happy mean between ferocity and meekness. He is fierce to the nth degree and meek to the nth. When Lancelot heard himself pronounced the best knight in the world, Quote, he wept as he had been a child that had been beaten, end quote. What, you may ask, is the relevance of this ideal to the modern world? It is terribly relevant. It may or may not be practic practicable. The Middle Ages notoriously failed to obey it, but it is certainly practical. Practical as the fact that men in a desert must find water or die. Let us be quite clear that the ideal is a paradox. Most of us have grown up among the ruins of a chivalrous tradition. We're taught in our youth that a bully is always a coward. Our first week at school refuted this lie, along with its corollary that a truly brave man is always gentle. It is a pernicious lie because it misses the real novelty and originality of the medieval demand upon human nature. Worse still, it represents as a natural fact something which is really a human ideal. Nowhere fully attained, and nowhere attained at all without arduous discipline. It is refuted by history and experience. Homer's Achilles knows nothing of the demand that the brave should also be the modest and the merciful. He kills men as they cry for quarter, or takes them prisoner to kill them at leisure. The heroes of the sagas know nothing of it. They are stern to inflict as they are stubborn to endure. Attila had a custom of fiercely rolling his eyes as if he wished to enjoy the terror which he inspired. Even the Romans, when gallant enemies fell into their hands, led them through the streets for a show and cut their throats in cellars when the show was over. At school we found the hero of the first fifteen might well be a noisy, arrogant, overbearing bully. In the last war we often found that the man who was invaluable in a show was a man for whom in peacetime we could not easily find room, except in Dartmoor prison. Such is heroism by nature, heroism outside the chivalrous tradition. The medieval ideal brought together two things which have no natural tendency to gravitate towards one another. It brought them together for that very reason. It taught humility and forbearance to the great warrior, because everyone knew by experience how much he usually needed that lesson. It demanded valour of the urbane and modest man, because everyone knew that he was as likely as not to be a milksop. Thoughts, gentlemen? Mm. I, I can jump in. Uh, uh, okay, so what I think about this, 
is you see it taken too far when it's the French version where it's sort of a the it's you could call it almost like Platonism, but slightly it can be petrified. Platonism, as in uh, strong Apollonianism, where you have everything that is known, which is like chivalry, right? You're enforcing your nature, I suppose you could call it. If we want to use the word nature necessarily, um, you're enforcing that with this, which and becomes petrified. So they become over feminine, over reliant, and disconnected from reality. And so they're defeated by the Yeoman in the Hundred Years' War on all these knights on horseback, that sort of thing, right? But when it's done right, you could even bring Heidegger in here, where what you're looking to be is to be a being in repose of your ancestors, which means, repose means, think about it, repose, but not as an exact copy. You need to be in re-solution, which means to look into your past and thrownness, which means to strip yourself of the narratives and actually get to the truth of the history and the being as best you can, because that gets you to authenticity, right? And right. then you sort of, when you do that, the authentic possibilities of the way the world looks to you appears, appears all the possibilities open to you, right? And then you're sort of that, that Dionysian Nietzschean who is connected to the non-petrified reality, which is becoming, as Nietzsche talks about becoming, right? And so you're... That's what he calls the grand style, which is the artist that's more connected to the becoming. It's not stratified with the Platonism. So he's in resolution to the truth. And so, but it's a mix of both being given form by being, which is the more semi-permanent things or the permanent things, but also connected to becoming at the same time. That's that, and that's, that's the radical subject. That's not just a brute, but is more like this chivalrous figure, if done properly. That's the ascetic knight. So he's both a Dionysian, but he's not a pure brute, great mother, Sibelian, you know, the goddess Sibelian. Yeah, he's both. He's both, right? But he's not stratified Apollonian either. Sorry, not uh, petrified Apollonian, which is the French thing I'm talking about. Does that make sense? So you're trying to find that balance between, and then you are this thing. Because if you just completely obey it all, you will... You will it, those those rules won't be permanent to every situation, like we see with St. George. The dragon always rises, right? The rules won't always apply, but if you have a balance between them, you are this, hopefully, this ascetic knight, this this ideal knight. Does that make sense? Makes full sense to me. It's yeah. uh, I, I, th I think that's right. And uh, because, because it's not just, uh, as you said, it's not just repeating, it's reposing. So it is mm. that bringing into the your current moment those same values in a way that is appropriate to that moment so i yes. mean so so like in some sense we want to um re-articulate that chivalrous tradition without the trappings of it the the um bit because well m maybe that's the wrong way to put it but I, th I think you get what i mean like rather than taking the surface level appearance of it Actually, the essence of it is what counts, and mm. that's that. That's what gets re-artic should be rearticulated. Yes. Whereas the tr the kind of trad, um, the trad uh, cons, their thing is taking yeah. the aesthetic or the the surface level, yes. And then, I mean, you there there is a the way there is a way of that can help if you are doing the behaviors that come with that to then yeah. build that up in you. 
but more often than not, like they're still taking selfies and posting them on yes. Instagram. So then it's the aesthetic they want, not the the moral metaphysical core which mm. underlie underlay that aesthetic in the past. And what what should happen when you do it authentically, even if you start mm. enacting the behaviors, what should happen? And I, I've had a sense of this before, just phenomenologically myself, when I've done practices that are similar like this, that are related mm. to what Heidegger talks about. Um, and you can do one which is called open, not open ground. It's, uh, Walter, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, DM me and I'll tell you it. Anyway, <laughs> so when I look it up later, but what you do being in repose and, and resolution, finding the authentic truth of this thing is what happens because being itself has the ecstasis of having been in the past and that's history, that's everything. So when you get to the authentic truth of finding out what the events really were, like, you know, the fake violin playing you have of your history, well, that person said this. You don't really say the events. So when you actually say, oh, what just happened? What was just what happened at that time, right? You're, you're sort of clearing the inauthenticity. What happens when you do that is that you, that's resolution. You're resolutioning your being by doing that. And when you're being in repose of your ancestors, let's say, uh, when you understand that's understanding the authentic history of who you are but also it's part of your existential being what happens is when you do that is ideas don't just come to you it's more the authentic possibilities are thrown in front of you so the world glistens this is the glistening you get this is the overman this is nietzsche's overman when you when you can get a sense of this i don't know if you guys have ever had a moment of vision where you've seen the authentic truth the possibilities that are thrown in front of you when you've cleared some falsity before you right? When you've had perhaps a dark moment or something, most people have had at least one moment of vision where they said, oh, I can just, oh, I can't believe I didn't see this possibility. Or, the world seems to, after the darkness to a light. Mm. What that is, is the authentic thro is thrown to you from your ancestors. Those possibilities, though, are historical. So it's not going to be the same for, Fa for someone that's not Faustian, right? So the ancestors that you're being in repose are, it's possibilities. It's not just a blank copy. It's, it's thrown to you from you're unconscious, you could call it. And then those possibilities are uh, limited to the historical being of what your ancestors did as well. And we always possess that. And we just get mm. lost by the inauthenticity, that propaganda that's sent to us. But yeah, that's what we're talking about. So it's not just a copy. It's the very possibilities that are thrown to you when you're in authenticity and you are trying being the overman, I suppose you could call it. Yeah are of your ancestors. It's not just uh, some idea that came to you. It's from the ancestors and historical being. Hopefully that makes sense. I, don't, I shouldn't use this Heideggerian terminology, but uh, it should make sense. <laughs> well, well, th um, this is kind of what I was thinking about, actually, when uh, the Enriab sent a super chat earlier for five pounds. Let me, let me get on the stream. Um, he was responding to Lady of Shalott's point about hierarchy earlier. To question hierarchy is as absurd as to not know the difference between a, a man and a woman. However, these are the times we live in. And my, my thought at the time was, you know, perception or apprehension of the world. When we read something like Lord of the Rings, one of the reasons why it's so refreshing is we're getting what C.S. Lewis would call visible souls. Things appear as their, their nature is, their, their being is. And so when we see like, uh, the ring wraiths, for example, they are between life and death. They're, they're, they're undead beings, and we, we, the characters see that in their ghostly forms, but also the feeling that they exude of despair and terror. Uh, and so the whole world is like that. And 
it appeals to us because we want that kind of world where we have that clarity mm. of seeing that. And I think somebody, mm. the the you know, like Edward the Third when he find founds the Order of the Garter and he steeps it in the legends of Arthur and Saint George, mm. like he's he sees the world in that way, or he's able to. Yes, but we are so um, cut away from these these stories. We we do not have we've been and and at the same time we have been taught a whole way of viewing the world through education, through the media, through just the activities we're engaged in, which strips us away from that kind of um, mm. metaphysical clarity, which thus makes it very hard for us to see things uh, directly. Indeed, that's why we have such an age of cynicism, doubt, questioning, relativism, because we... we in a sense, it's, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's our perception has yes. been clouded. Yes. And so it, it is in those moments, those gestalt moments, perhaps, where yes. we, we do receive that. But in general, we find it in this world, in this modern age, in the West, so hard to have that. Um, mm. And that, that's what really struck me about that. So I, I think um, th that's that's why the stories appeal to us in part, because we get the, we get to encounter that in a way we, we haven't, we don't normally. Yes, they're authentic, right? Yeah. This isn't authentic. The gestalt of the inframing that we're in is false mm. modernism quantitative calculation. Uh, the authentic is what it's calling you to and pulling you towards. It's clearing. And so when you read those stories, we probably get a, you get a sort of minor uh, moment of vision, don't you? Where the world looks different to you suddenly. That's the authentic thing. It's cleared that the inauthentic, it's cleared the they, the sort of... Uh, Get inframed, propagandized narrative that we've been given scientism at uh, public school. Well, that's that's incidentally why uh, I did want to sort of push back a little bit on uh, a point that you made slightly offhand earlier, um, Scott, about um, people sort of waking up a little bit more to you know as as times get harder uh, and uh, sort of being reinvigorated to sort of challenge some of the uh, some of the corruption that uh, that we see around us. I don't think that's necessarily true because uh, it depends more on the framing. Yeah. I think things things can get much worse, and the uh, the reaction can be to demand more of uh, more of what's making you sick. Yeah, it you know, can more go more of the corruption. More, you know, the, the the problem is that we're not doing that we're not doing modernity and all of its corruption hard enough. Whereas mm -hmm. the difference that you get in some of the uh, the ages prior that we uh, that we talked about is there was a recentering back on certain mythological truths that then allowed a like a recentering of virtues. And even if the times weren't necessarily that bad, as in the case of the, uh, the Victorian era, um, mm. you know, obviously they had they had their own challenges. But uh, we can probably say that it wasn't as bad as the the height of the War of the Roses or the height of the Anarchy. Um, mm. But still, they had this recentering, and it still propelled them on to uh, to much greater things. And that that is the key thing, I think, more than any material conditions, because the way that you view your material conditions and the way that the way that you even measure what what is materially good or bad is something which is not a self evident mm. frame. No, I agree with that. I think all it presents is an opportunity. We're actually in a worse position than they were because the technological and framing is so much more powerful than it was before. It also presents, though, it gives us power because we can go on the internet. It also seeps into authentic being. And that's what going to church is. That's what's having these rituals that you're constantly trying to hold fast a gold, right, to clear up the inauthenticity. Every time you go to church, you get closer to the authentic truth, doing, doing these practices, right? We go constantly, like, it's like breaking out of that world of the inframes modernism, and then you're trying to hold this fast. And then as you go back into the world, it's like taking a bubble 
like a Galadriel's vial or something into Mordor every time you leave church. That's what happens. Whereas before, back in Greek times, in Greek times, they're living with the gods. Heraclitus sees God in the, the hearth, right? He sees it. Oh, that's, that's God. That's the gods there. It's just they symbolically see it properly as, as it's supposed to be. Being is enchanted. Being is not enchanted. This is the enchantment. Being is, is, is naturally how it's supposed to be, right? C.S. Lewis talks about this, is that um, Christianity seems less plausible in their modernist hotel room, but not at your proper chapel, right? But it's less plausible here where it's a blank room because, you, because that very location is imbued, as Rupert says, it's imbued with utilitarianism. So you're seeping into your being. Whereas if you made it a neo-Gothic hotel room, what's going to happen? It's properly aligned with... with the, the Faustian man's old structures, right? So everything is this. My room I'm in is seeping into like it's not. This is not a uh, uh, chapel. It's modernist. It's utilitarian, and so it's constantly we're constantly walking into Mordor every time we leave church, right? I mean that. Yeah, I think that's something profound that I've been. You're putting into words that I've just tried to figure out how to express, which is that you know if you put. Like if you look at you look at a painting or an image that, of something that's inspiring and heroic, the setting that that's in, the environment, the architecture, whatever that is, that lends itself as much to the formation of the hero in the image as you know the man himself. So mm. you put a man, let's say he's wearing uh, he's wearing whatever his outfit is. You put that man in this grand Gothic cathedral. Suddenly, everything that he's doing is imbued with profound meaning yes. and has this this deep sense to it. Whereas you put him in uh, copy paste suburbia, or you put him in you put him in the Seven Eleven, you know, suddenly it strips that all away. Yeah, it's yes. reaching transcendence through uh, through aesthetics to an extent. Mm. And, and I think well, you could also. Uh, oh, sorry, you're about to. I thought you'd finish. Yeah, just, or, or or just like uh, sort of get. Using that uh, that method of sort of like peering peering through the veil is kind of how I tend to think about it. So uh, beauty is is one of these things I would say that uh, kind of like leads you towards towards some sense of like what the what the transcendental is when you're sort of able to look somewhat beyond beyond any kind of like false framing that you may have because it's much harder to twist beauty in so, uh, in one way or another. Yeah. So this is my question then. So to to actually reach this place where the actions that we do fit within the context and, and are this kind of natural expression of the heroic, do like how do we how do we get to that point if we're in if we're in modernity? Do we need to just build something? Do we need to move or travel to a place mm -hmm. that has these qualities that where where the heroic just naturally arises from it? I, maybe I'm putting too much pressure on just the environment and not the man himself needing to take action. But what, what do you guys make of that? It's a very complicated problem, but that, of course, you could just say, oh, we just need to build everything like a new Gothic cathedral, but it's resources. It's dealing with the enemy right, at the right. same time, right? Going into the wild. But fundamentally, if we can at least understand the relationship between these things, what this is, it's the agent arena relationship. The agent, uh, St. George, has a context quite naturally that he fits into, which is, where he is it's he's meant for a certain context a certain uh, you call it an antagonistic context but also the structure the footballer has the arena the footballer has equipment that all applies to it the european should have neo-gothic this is what was the uprising of neo-gothic in england was trying to bring back the authentic 
uh, being uh, on all the structures we were building. I mean, certainly, when, I, when, you, when you realize this and you look around, you go, we should build it, be building everything neo-Gothic right now. We should be doing that right now. And everything's utilitarian. It's disgusting. We used to, when they went to Australia, it was all built at Victorian age. They built it neo-Gothic. And this was an uprising, a response to this modernism. It didn't work in, it didn't work in, in totality, but it helped, at least helped, right? So this Asian arena relationship, you can see it even symbolically, right? Uh, I call it a hyper arena. So the hyper agent has a hyper arena. It's symbolically, say, the Greenwood. The Greenwood doesn't just apply to the pub. The Greenwood is also other things, right? It's a private club, right? So that's his context. So when you understand that, you go, okay, I want to be a hero. It's not just about um, enacting the procedures. You want to set up your environment to reinforce the very uh, soul of the hero. Because if you don't have mm. your, whatever, your house set up properly, if you don't have a chapel, how are you going to be a good Christian, right? You, need, you should have a chapel, a little chapel or a place in your room that's like that, right? Uh, every Jesus's context is the, the church, right? The, the church holds the spirit, the virtual, the body is the church of Jesus. And the hyper agent of Jesus, God, right, is the spirit that moves the body around. It's the body, right? So, yeah, that's if we understand that, that's one help. But what do you do? We only have so many resources. Russia, I mean, right. so, it's a bit, it's a bit to talk about Russia, but they were building these cathedrals, man. Have you seen these cathedrals dedicated was, to the armed forces? My God, I was just about to do it. Yeah, I was just about to bring up the uh, like the neo Byzantine revival. Yeah, it, it, that's, you hear it with the you hear it with the Mechanicus theme. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen that. It's fucking glorious. Sorry, excuse my. Uh, yeah, the uh, yeah, it's... the Moscow, the Moscow military, uh, military cathedral. But yeah, um, I mean that's that's kind of an example of a different, like a different culture or a different civilization, perhaps even uh, achieving that, or, or at least moving in the right direction towards it. So now we just sort of need to find that way of, and and you can kind of tell it because it feels right. Yes. Even though even though we're not in that culture, you can you can kind of like sense the sense a certain amount of feeling about it and 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 a, a correctness about it. So now we find whatever that whatever that should be for us. Well, I'm realizing there's, there's now. There's another oh, yeah, historical comparison, just quickly. Um, have you ever seen the uh, the alternative Gothic concepts, uh, like concept drawings, like the Gothic proposal for the Reichstag? Yes, I have. Yeah. Oh, not the Reichstag. No. No. Yeah. The, the Reich. Yeah. So the uh, the Reichstag. Uh, there was an, another architect that was uh, putting forward a proposal for a, a design for the Reichstag in Germany, and uh, and yeah, it, it, I, I dare say it looks a lot more appropriate to uh, to what Germany what Germany is compared to the, uh, the sort of more. It's Gothic, is it? New... Sorry, I guess Gothic, right? It's yeah, Gothic it, it, rather it's... than classical, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, it, but it's yeah. incredibly Gothic. Yeah, I've seen some of the alternate drawings for Westminster, uh, at, uh, the Palace of Westminster. I've seen those ones, the alternate uh, Gothic ones for that, and they're amazing. Uh, there's some that are much larger uh, versions of that. But think about what's needed for that. You can only do it with the patronage of a king. You just can't. It's just too capitalistic. You need someone who has ultimate authority. You need an author to rise to say, well, no, we're just going to pay for that. Is that you're going and you're going to pay for it? Say <laughs> so Mexico's going to pay for it. Like you're going to pay for it, right? You need a Chad King. I just don't see it, ha or at least an aristocracy who all are on the same board. So it's, it'd have to be an alternative elite or a or a big man that comes in. You, you, I think you can do it on the smaller scale, right? You should put icons in your room. You should have these. I've got a cross here. That's you should have the. You need these things around the, the context to imbue what you're doing, or it, it won't work. 
unless you put the footballer in the arena, it's not going to work. Um, I think you can do it on a small scale. It's hard, though, isn't it? Because you see some of these guys going out to the wild, like Woodlander I had on my, um, my podcast. Uh, how much money does it cost? It's pretty, it'd be pretty expensive to put some awnings. You could do it cheaply, do some smaller awnings on uh, um, and different things on the structure. But usually people are going to think utilitarian. I was just speaking to an engineer uh, who's one of a Greenwood member, a very important engineer, actually, a high-tech engineer. And he uh, is building, he's got more wealth though, right? So he can build a, a more uh, traditional cabin out there. Whereas he, when he said the person down from him uh, is a Scouse guy, right? And he's just used the most ratty stuff and, uh, to make his building. Uh, the most cheap as well. And, he, he was and this is okay. I get people want to save money, but you don't really get the effect as much when you put this ratty modernist cabin out there. Um, when you could just spend a bit more, but that's always going to assault us, isn't it? Oh, but how we can we afford it? So, I I don't know. I put on my wall, the work is ultimately for the sake of English being folk and demo and demos for economics. That's one thing that helps me. That's kind of epicurean. I think it's a proposition that constantly reminds me that for the sake of, so perhaps I will sacrifice more money for things. Because otherwise, you will always go for the cheapest thing, won't you? Because of the way the utilitarian societies organized. So how do we overcome that? I don't know. An ultimate authority that says, bad luck, we're paying for it. Or try to do it on an individual basis. We do need what, yeah, yeah. What do you think of that? Well, you, you Scott, or here, you, Scott, in your podcast studio with the English manor, in your backdrop, putting yourself into that context, I'm, I'm just kind of realizing now that is an expression. I mean, you know, it's, and it's in a smaller scale, but it is one of those things that, that does imbue what you're doing in its proper context. It does, it does for you, but it's not, I mean, for me, mm. this does, right? But this is a green screen. So I'm not... I, for the agent arena relationship, I'm not surrounded by the context of it. Nathan, perhaps, is closer to actual castles, right? So, yeah, it helps for the for the audience. I've imbued the set, the set with this. So, yes, I did it on purpose for the aesthetic of it. For me, it doesn't help me though. It helps everyone that watches. So, you are right. It's an agent arena relationship. But what we really do need is the real, of course, right? To imbue. That's why I've got the cross here. That's why I have. You know, I've got, I've got these real things to, to um, if I could afford it, this would be a good, I can't afford it, right? But yeah, you are definitely right in terms of the context, but just doesn't help me though. It's more for the audience who's watching. My, ne my oh, next stream is going... Sorry, go. Mm. I just meant, uh, the tweed, the tweed is, is one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, sorry, go. I was just going to say, my next stream is going to take place from the ruins of Berwick Castle where there is mm. no electricity, but I'll find a way. I'll find a way, everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree with this this idea of, um, you know, we were talking earlier about how the land and the spirit informed one another with the making of gardens or that desire to make gardens. And then, well, we've spoken about this a lot, Scott, that your soul is not just cut off from the rest of the world and left untouched by what you do or what you interact with. It's very impressionable. It's like a wax waiting for uh, stamps to come in on it. And everything around you is informing you and everything you do is informing that and changing your the direction of your being in one way or another. Mm. Um, and I, I, I guess um, one, th one thing I was thinking about, um, you know, agreeing with everything you've said about what we could do personally, I think on the, on the um, 
the broader scale, I think I, I think in part really believing and acting upon the idea that we don't live in this kind of global civilization. There is um, there is a boundary between the sanctuary and the wilderness. And if we really internalize that, then we then we start to understand, okay, what we're doing here is we're not just trying to change our society. We're trying to to keep the sanctuary safe and to build the walls of the sanctuary. And I, I kind of think this is this is gonna be a really banal analogy, but I remember listening to Carlo Ancelotti, who's probably one of the great greatest football managers of all time. And he was talking about how do I justify to my players that I drop them? You know, some of them I'm friends with. Uh, it's a painful thing to say you're not playing this week. Oh, it's for the good of the team. And I can justify anything on the basis of, well, I like you, but I have to do this for the good of the team. With the idea of the sanctuary, it's for the good of the sanctuary. And mm. there's that duty that you do it because that's your duty to, to protect the sanctuary. Um, whether you will be victorious or not, you have a duty to do that. And I think that gives a, a, a sense of conviction and purpose, um, which directs our actions then. Okay, so how do we go about protecting the sanctuary? We can actually think about that in various ways. So, okay, we might not be able to do the whole thing ourselves, but we can say, okay, there's a hole here. How do we fix that hole in the sanctuary wall? Um, and maybe we could develop something, you know, a strategy for, for doing that, which is persuasive. And then, or not even necessarily persuasive, because what, I, tying this background to St. George, what strikes me about the St. George story uh, is that he doesn't take power because, you know, the knight who, who conquers the dragon, he sh you could think, well, he should be the leader. He is the hero. And for Carlisle, we admire and we obey and are loyal to the hero. They become the leaders of our societies. So St. George should be the leader in this situation, but he doesn't take that mantle. He doesn't usurp the king. He pushes the king in the right direction. He pushes society in the right direction through his virtuousness. Uh, mm. He has that authority to direct it. And so there's almost a sense that if you're making yourself in trying to form that heroic in yourself and you're providing the means to secure the walls, such as St. George does, then you need not lead. You can be like that knight who pushes King Charles in the right direction, for example. I, I don't I don't say that it might it will be him for sure. I just mean no, no, you're do, right. do you see what I'm trying to get at? No, no, you're 100 percent right because that's why yeah. it's a hyper agent. Mm -hmm. It's that's why, because of course the, the king once was a hero, right? He once was a prince mm. who black prince who went out to, right? And he embodied the hyper agent. And that hyper agent lives on after he goes back and does and go, becomes a king and embodies a different part of the pantheon of the heroes, right? So mm. that's what I meant earlier when I said St. George is the expeditionary extension of the overking. But it's not, you see, so it's the organism itself, but the king can't be that because he needs to rule that mm. that is the eternal appendage of the expedition of the, of the, of the, war, of the, of the, of the hero. So that completely fits with it. What you're saying, there's a reason why that logic doesn't work. The king can't be St. George, right? Because he can't be mm -hmm. slaying dragons when he's ruling. But, and then we see this with Arthur. He sends out Gawain. Gawain is Arthur's extension. Arthur only, well, Arthur, he can be when he goes out on an expeditionary war, but that's very rare. It's very rare for that to occur. 
Um, but yeah, Arthur once was a person that had to conquer the kingdoms as a St. George. When he begins to rule, he takes on the benevolent king, a different, different archetype, right? Richard himself embodies St. George when he goes out there as an expedition. When he comes back, he's no longer St. George, right? He's no longer that hyper agent. It goes on as an eternal archetype to make sure that we always have uh, an available the heroic masculine figure that goes out and does it. Because if it's abandoned, you never get the perfect society, do you? So you are 100% right with that. Yeah. Not Hugo, I, I saw that you, you had changed your environment for a second. I made an attempt. The lighting did not match in the least. I think that's <laughs> what works so much about Scots is the lighting fits within the context. Well, I, th I think um, we've probably got 10, 15 minutes because I'm going to, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, my brain is shutting down with tiredness. So I, uh, but I want, I want to give everybody a chance if there's anything that you feel we should talk about with St. George before, before we go. And we will do uh, remaining super chat, chats before we go. So don't worry, folks. But uh, yes, is there, any, is there anything that we've not touched upon? Um, St. George, Englishness, uh, the state of the modern world. Is that, If there's anything in those broad categories we've not talked about that you really wanted to, uh, please do raise it. Um, there is one thing, and I'll just see if I can bring it up. Um, I just want to go to the English Heritage website, if I can see it here. Um, sorry, I don't want to ruin the stream by doing this, but I can, I can quickly find it. Bring it down here. Um, anyway, I can't exactly find it so quickly enough to not interrupt the stream, but if you go to the English Heritage website, they talk about St. George, they go through these uh, eight points, and they're all debunking. They're all debunking. It's, a, it's an attack on St. George. So this, I just wanted to say that, as the, you said, mentioned modernism, as the state of where we are, is that all oh, our institutions are now attacking the great heroes, calling him a foreigner, essentially. And I hope today that we've articulated, or at least I articulated earlier, that it's a different thing. It's English. So when they say it's a foreigner, it's not. It's a particular hyper-agent that's ours, that's here, that I think is different than other parts of it. Even though it's been brought under, I understand that, uh, the, the canon by picking that, but I think there's something in our being that shows it because it suits us. And I think I've reasonably articulated as individual to it. So to say that this historical person was born elsewhere just misunderstands what mythos is and misunderstands what hyper-agents are, what distributed cognition is. Um, that's all I wanted to say about it. St. George is English born in England as a uh, hyper agent. These idiots that do it are just trying to defeat you and uh, undermine you. I'm sure we're all aware of that, but it's just important to articulate that English mm. heritage is an enemy organ part of the organism. Is this, is this the page you were, you were meaning, Scott? Um, I have to look because I just turned off the um, uh, where you are. I can't see the screen. Let me just get back to you and then full screen that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And they yeah. go through it and they're just debunking it, essentially. Whoa, who's the real St. George, right? They're looking for some human. Whereas mm -hmm. St. George, even if you take the canon seriously, if you take the canon seriously, just talking about the Christian element of it, that person's in heaven now and new things emerge out of the mythos that St. George went here and St. George went there. Well, yes, he did as a hyper agent went there, right? So they say, oh, but the historical one didn't. Well, you don't get how it works. It's in heaven now, right? Just like Jesus as body is the church itself, it's in virtual. He the mind has always been a microcosm of heaven. So even if you are a materialist, you could call it the mm. unconscious, but it's always been there. 
So St. George is going to those places as a virtual spirit. Just so materialists understand what's going on with what the ancients thought about it, they understand that. You can articulate it as unconscious, but mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's all. I, I'm also interested in the choice of fellow here. He looks a bit, to me, he looks like Daniel Fetterman. Does anybody else see that? Downcast, he looks gr grim, a bit overweight. Interesting choice, English heritage. Yeah. Very mm -hmm. heroic. <laughs> <laughs> kind of displeased with being photographed yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah displeased. Yeah. Oh, they debunked me. Oh. I guess I guess there's nothing to England anymore, isn't it? That's what he looks like, depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rupert. Yeah, there, there was a there was sort of a through line to George that I was going well, Saint George that I was going to um, sort of sketch out, but I think uh, Scott did a much better job earlier and uh, sort of took took the wind of my took the wind out of my sails because you you sort of uh, you did it much in a much more sophisticated fashion. But I think there is there's, there is also a, a sort of more. Uh, direct, if st still somewhat, somewhat sort of spiritual tale that you can tell about how Saint George was sort of understood and uh, and portrayed, and it it does lock in this sort of English quality in that. Um, so you you weren't very fond of the um, the Richard the First sort of third, third Crusade angle where he took uh, he supposedly took Saint George as as a, uh, a sort of patron saint during the course there, but the the sort of way that the crusade unfolded was kind of almost seen as like a um, a vindication like by my reading of uh, of like what what saint george represented and and what was sort of uh, accepted and and what was approved of by god and so that was sort of carried back and then used as a a blueprint for for what the later order of the garter would kind of try to try to exemplify to a great extent because you have richard the first who is himself steeped in all of these kind of like chivalric uh, legends and whatever. And while he's, while he's on, uh, you know, all the stories and while he's on crusade, he essentially throw like, you know, pose, poses this open question to, to, to the divine and, and, uh, and says, okay, within the frame of the, uh, the warrior saint, St. George, how, how should I react? And then he's given approval for how he, how he conducts himself. And so that is carried forward. And then that is then used as a model carrying down, not only to the, uh, the Order of the Garter, but also to almost the entirety of England itself, especially to the knightly class, because that is then used as a blueprint for Englishness itself. And so you almost have like a reverse uh, causality in, in, a, in a way where, where Englishness is kind of like molded around this around this uh, divine, uh, like sort of divinely approved of model of uh, like yeah. what, what, what correct, what, what is the correct conduct for a uh, a an English knight, basically. It sanctifies, really. So he goes there almost with an English way of being as a northerner. With it. This is what the Crusades were. It's the Faustian man with his northern, uh, his, not in so much barbarianism, but it's, he sanctifies the English way of being. So there's a hyper-agent there driving him down there, right? As, and it's not just Richard, it's there's other Englishmen with him. I know he said Norman, but the Normans are very similar. And, and you know, Anyway, he's driven down there. So the hyper-agent is then... Uh, that's with them as deify is, is brought into the canon in a way what drove them down there is brought into the canon uh with um saint george who probably wasn't i don't know if the dragon story existed then I'm not sure because uh, this was before uh the book the earliest book that we know of that mentions the dragon story i mean, no it probably did no it would have anyway so yeah I, I i agree with what you're saying um do you were you saying were you say, saying that it was uh, causally after or more it was a sanctified 
something that goes down with them and then is sanctified. Well, obviously, whatever whatever is sort of like uh, inherent at that point to the uh, the instrument yeah. that are there is is carried with them, and it depends on how much stock you put on that versus uh, how much was sort of created or um, not not created whole cloth, obviously, but emphasized. You could perhaps say by uh, Edward the Third's sort of ethno, eth deliberate ethnogenesis. Yeah, yeah. But he is he's deliberately It'd be a mix of both. Yeah, there'd be a, there'd be a certain emergent form of it, right? Because you get you probably have something that's more raw that gets. Uh, uh, more chivalrized, right, by the Christian element. So there's probably a mix of both there. Um, and brought into the canon. It's a way of bringing this way of being into the canon. So it is something that's native in us, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it needs to be, though, because you need a hyper agent because you can't really pray to, you can't really pray to Arthur, can you? So you need Arthur to be a, a figure that's in the canon that can bless you because you pray to St. George and St. George then blesses you as a saint and helps you in battle. I don't think you can pray to in the canon. You can't pray to Arthur, can you, to bless you, even though he's in heaven, so to speak. Yeah. So it's necessary to actually have a patron saint to actually support your country, and you can't yeah. use the one that is the, the formative figure. Yeah. Though it, it was replacing a, a different um, a different patron saint, True. of course, uh, Saint True. Edmund, I believe. Yeah, there was, there was Edmund the Martyr, and then there were the, the Saxon king who was killed uh, fighting the Vikings uh, during the period of Alfred. But then you also have the um, uh, Edward the Confessor was also a kind of quasi patron saint as well. Yeah. Um, so so both figures who uh, well the first one dies in battle, the second one um, is known for his prayerful life. But then you you have the victorious knight who takes over that takes over that mantle, which I, I think is quite an interesting shift in mm. mentality uh, yeah. and spirit mm. yeah i mean and that's the thing i would i would emphasize is that it uh, it is so e even though saint edmund himself died in battle there is there is like almost a greater emphasis put on the martial on the martial qualities and that perhaps mm. you could say reflects or or uh, is, is then uh, magnified or, or magnifies rather the militarization of uh, england itself and that you have mm. all these different factors mm. coming together both you know material geopolitical, uh, spiritual, all coming together to enhance this uh, this intense martial spirit. Mm. Well, one thing I wanted to add, because you, you kind of brought in the crusading context here, is I think the uh, George and the Dragon story can be read very heavily uh, as a, you know, the crusaders versus uh, the Muslims and the, the kind of reconquest of the Holy Land. Um, for context, so the Battle of Antioch in 1098 uh, is the first kind of reference to George appearing in crusading battle. And uh, this was just after the uh, the crusaders found the holy lance, so the lance that or spear that pierced the side of Christ uh, was found. And then they ride out to fight uh, the Islamic forces. And uh, a number of them led by Bohemond are surrounded or trapped or whatever it looks like they're going to have a you know a heroic last stand right so that that northern heroic spirit coming through but then three saints appear riding white horses saint george saint demetrius and i forget the last one i matt you're nodding your head do you do you have any idea oh just just that this is the story of the battle of antioch is so reminiscent of helms deep it was this yes mm -hmm. yeah Oh yeah, definitely. So, so you, you have, and they lead other 
kind of knight spiritual uh, knights who in battle with the crusaders and they overcome the other the the forces and so so bear that in mind that you've got this connection of a spear with saint george overcoming the pagan the heathen to re-establish to to build the garden back in christendom or re re reignite that within the holy land then come to the where the setting of the saint george story is well it's in libya right so this mm. would have been a, a part of the islamic countries at that point or islamic peoples it's so it's not mm. just pagan it, it's this islamic and then further with the the dragon concept well the dragon was a symbol of the devil uh, the serpent being draco and often where depictions of christ rising from the dead what's he doing he's he's crushing a dragon under his foot mm. so you're you're having all of this kind of strong uh symbolism of um the christian overcoming sin the christian overcoming the heathen which kind of works in with the crusading mentality and mm. the experience of the crusaders that that's what they are doing they are they are themselves in fighting the dragon and trying to um live in their own lives the saint george story as it were they are becoming saint george's through their actions and we shouldn't underestimate we, or we should understand that they are they actually see don't think it's just mm -hmm. written as a legend they see saint george up there on the hill right they even mm -hmm. if, firstly that the way they see the world is symbolic the way the world worlds to us is modern, so we don't see actual St. George on a hill, even though it is a distributed cognition amongst them all, is that it will appear to them, and Jung talks about this, is that in moments of great uh, great uh, upheaval and things that happened, even the modernists can see, but two people, multiple people, heaps of stories of them seeing mythological figures out and around. So it's not just that. Rupert, John There's a good few examples of this, I just wanted to say, um, in the, uh, the modernist era. I think uh, there's a few of them around... Uh, World War One and, and a little bit uh, after that as well. So I believe there were um, there were angels, I believe, uh, seen on the uh, around the Battle of Warsaw as well when uh, when the Poles were fighting off the Bolsheviks. Mm. Uh, and that's I, not not real. <laughs> that's real in the sense that if you think symbolically, that's really there as a distributed cognition. It's there. That's why they see it. It's between them all, right? I mean, look, I can make ontological arguments for this. I'm not going to now because it would take forever. But it's, let's not think about it. It's just in their head. No. All right. I'll make an argument at a different time. But yeah, just take it more seriously then. It's just an illusion in their mind because that's in the ontology that you're in. So yeah, that's all I'd say there. Yeah, another more famous one actually was the uh, the Angels of Mons uh, during World War One again uh, when, the, when there were, I believe... Uh, Agincourt era archers, longbowmen, uh, protecting the the British, British ranks against against the mm. uh, the Germans. Yeah, I think so. there's other St George ones too in in World War One, maybe World War Two. Um, yeah, where, where, where you've heard stories of that. Great empirical evidence to back it up. At least seeing it anyway. Modern in the modern case, and think about it, if you think symbolically, that's even just just understanding the world in a different way. It's just much more clear to them how these things work. And in fact, like I've said before, is that these are in fact better ways to, to 
more efficient ways to understand the world. It's uh, now the symbolic way of thinking and the way the ancients saw the world is proving more useful than the quantitative for encompassing and predicting all-encompassing phenomena, like these ca these categories, like the unknown, the, the St. George and the Dragon. These now can be, you can use these symbolic things to see the world, like you look on the internet. Bap, Bronze Age pervert, these are principalities that have a spirit to them, right? The woke parasite, it's a being, it's an organism between them all. And it can, that can help you then predict it using the symbolic thinking. So it's not useless, it's not some form of mythology, it's not something that's just we're bringing up because of the stories, we like the stories. We want to tell it to children, no. It's, it has a utility as well, especially these days. Nord Hugo, is there anything you wanted to, to bring up in the conversation before before we finish up? Sure, yeah, just to give kind of some last thoughts here. Um, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wake you out. I'm gonna rouse you out of this uh, stupor, there, Nathan. I'm gonna rouse the uh, rouse. He's pretty late, man. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, you poor, you poor guys across the. Sorry, park. Nathan. Uh, no, it's great. It's great. I asked for this. But what what is it about the story of Saint George that I mean, both on the English level, but and just to. What is what is it about it that's so convicting and so inspiring to to men? And it is the it's the radical conviction. It's the what happens when a man completely abandons his fear of death when he's willing to charge the most terrifying monsters there are head on. It's it's extraordinary just the possibility that that manifests and and it shows what it is to be the sort of warrior knight, both in a glorious life and in a glorious death, as the dragon slayer and as the martyr, it's embodying the full potential of Christian man. And it's, it's a radical version of life, a radical version of Christianity, that it's none of this milquetoast sort of slop of half-hearted, okay, we'll, we'll take what we're allowed to say here and, and not allowed to say there, and we'll We'll go halfway on it. And that's, that's no real true version of Christianity. Christ says, if you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. If we're trying to present what it is to be a Christian, if we're trying to present what it is to be a man as this half-hearted, you know, you can maybe be a little bit courageous here, but kind of back off there. If we're trying to present as this halfway thing, that's, you know, maybe we'll get more people. Maybe we'll get people who want to just feel a little bit uncomfortable once in a while, but nothing beyond that. But that's not really, that's not the point of Christianity. That's not the point of living as a knight. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm using the word knight more as like the, the goal and the level that we're trying to aspire to. And it's, that's what we need to get back to is the, is the St. George model. It's the, all right, we are going to, face down death, we're going to face down the monsters, we're going to endure whatever persecutions and martyrdom will face us, and we'll do it, you know, with complete confidence and courage that God will get us through. And, and death, is no, death is no defeat. Death is part of the path to glory, and mm -hmm. not that it's the case for all of us to do that way, you know, there's no there's, uh, what is what is Tolkien say that about a simple life, there's nothing, um, it's, what, uh, 
I'm, I'm forgetting yeah, it's the no line, small thing to celebrate a simple life. Yeah, it's indeed, not. It so, and it's often the smallest person that moves the course of uh, the future as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. Not everyone has to do it. But sorry. Right, right. And I mean, there is the place. I mean, if we're if we're blessed, then you know we can have this life of you know where it's it's the everyday things that that turn the tide of darkness. But on the other hand, too, I think we're increasingly coming to the place now in our time of history where you know maybe we're presented with a path that is more like St. George, where we do need to charge head on against the monsters that are ravaging our kingdoms. Well, I mean, to, to, uh, to the stream that we, uh, that we did recently, Nathan, uh, we're, we're kind of uh, in and perhaps, and perhaps continuing to move through or you know, however you want to frame this, moving into an era, into an era of uh, the possibility of great restorers and great restoration again. So we need to be understanding of the, of the process, perhaps, um, and awake to the possibilities. And, and being given form by these things. And that's what this is about. That's, it's about it's what I do, it's what Nathan does, what you, you guys are doing. It's trying, okay, we need to know the ancient knowledge. We want to be at the forefront of it. And for the people watching, it's an opportunity for you, people to be a part of this. You know, things are emerging, different community things, where in-person in events, opportunities to be a part of hopefully a vanguard that are restorers right so it's a it's it's high, it'll be hierarchical but like england's always been it's, it's an opportunity for yeoman to rise through that that's what this is you know i'm not an aristocrat or anything like that i'm middle class so i'm sure you guys as well uh but um right and that's that's it's always been the way of being and uh it's an opportunity and you've got to participate though and answer the call, and that can start small. I can start by paying a union due or a membership or whatever, joining Nathan's channel, become a member or whatever it is. Come to basket weaving events and that sort of thing. So, guys, you've put it so beautifully, and I, I think that's a wonderful note to to finish off on. That you can be a part of the restoration. That's mm. that's that is that is something that I think people can take hold of and uh, think about for themselves. If they, if they take anything away, you know think about it feel about it and then act upon it um we have uh, one further super chat uh from lady of shallot uh for two australian dollars uh the charge of the light brigade tennyson said it i think that was um in reference to you were speaking earlier about uh doing your duty not not to ask why about it just to and, and not for reward or to gain or yeah, yeah to do or die uh so thank you lady of shallot and thank you henry ab for your earlier super chat. Um, gentlemen, is there anything that uh, you would like to promote before we go? Uh, Scott. Oh, me. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, just Google my name and you'll find my channel there. Um, and uh, there's probably, I suppose, relevant to this, perhaps something we've spoken about is just my video. It'll come up, it's the first thing that'll play. It's just about the metaphysics of Tweed. It's about the contact of the arena and the equipment is connected to the context and the arena of the agent and how that's important to the very getting into the way of being. Uh, so that's what that's about, related to what we're talking about. The video of how, and how these folk things and how these, it's equipment, right? Equipment's part of the context, part of the arena, like we mentioned earlier. So why that's important, metaphysically. That's it, yeah, just my channel. Google my, look my Scott Mannion name and, and it'll come up. I think that's possibly my favorite video ever. Like that is just, mm. oh, I wow. just love that video. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> um, it's uh, because 
I've, you know, at first you think, okay, what can he possibly say about tweed suits, right? Yeah, yeah. But you you show how much meaning there is in the tweed suit, and I was just like, wow, this is uh, this is just brilliant. Everybody has to watch this. So yes, you can get more out of there's more in things than people realize, right? When you mm -hmm. find the right things, when you have an intuition for something, you go, there's something in this. Keep following that. You can, you can metaphysically unpack it when you do. Yeah, you wouldn't have had that response if there wasn't something in it. It would just feel inauthentic if I was just making it up or some shit. The reason why you respond like that is because some things have that depth to them, and we've ignored them for so long. But sorry, anyway, I've talked enough. <laughs> no, thank you, Scott, and thank you for coming on again. Uh, and everybody, check out his channel, uh, Matt. Anything? You uh, want to yeah, no, that's. I've got a YouTube channel, but yeah, be sure to check out Nathan Scott Rupert. Um... What I love about the content of these guys is it's, it has an animating quality to it. It's not just you're hearing the stories, but then it's also getting to this layer of, of application. And that's yeah. something that there's too, there's too much just kind of idle chatter. So it's, it's refreshing to get back to a place of, all right, we're going we're gonna to talk and unpack these stories and these, these ancient mythology. But all right, how do, what does this mean for us? And how do, we, how do we actually take action and take inspiration from it? Oh, most definitely. I, I think, um, you know, the, the example I always think of, there's, there's two, they're interrelated, is one, and they're, they're both to do with kind of movies. You'll see, like, you get, like, in Star Wars, you get the lore channels, and it's like, why did Yoda have a green lightsaber? Or why did Mace Windu wear brown boots instead of black boots? And uh, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious, but, like, that's the kind of thing. It's like, Okay, here's a fact about Star Wars that you didn't know before, and it's kind of interesting, mm. but it doesn't like it. That's not why you watch Star Wars, right? That's not why it really appeals to you. And you probably could say something about the meaning of a green lightsaber, which does say something about the nature of color and how it, what it's saying to you, and what it says about that character, and and so on. But it, it's very on the surface. But the other one is like the movie critic, who kind of. De de deconstructs all of the woke movies today and says this is what's wrong with it this is what's wrong with it but there's there's no kind of like okay where do we go from here apart from back to the 90s or something like that um whereas what you're saying Nord Hugo, and i think your channel really does this as well um is that there's something in these things which animate us anyway and we're just by touching upon them you then are able to intensify that very thing which was responding in the first place. So, yeah, everybody check out Nord Hugo's channel. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, very underrated. And uh, hopefully hopefully, we'll get you some more subscribers in due course. <laughs> um, and finally, Rupert, anything you would like to promote? Uh, probably fairly similar thing, really. Just uh, Google my name and, uh, and have a look at anything you find. I, I... At this point, I'm mostly mostly popping on uh, streams, but most of the uh, most of the appearances are very good conversations. I probably go as far as say all. So um, yeah, everything that's on this channel that we've done together, um, the two streams I've done with Semiagog, also quite good, mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, similarly, though, I'm I'm always trying to approach things like uh, history with a an eye to a trying to draw out sort of like inspirational heroic figures and and trying to sort of like reignite a heroic spirit by seeing a model of uh, how that how that plays out but also trying to 
from the systemic side of things, trying to understand, okay, there were other people in uh, in various positions like like ours in the past, and uh, what did they do to navigate it either successfully or unsuccessfully? And trying to uh, draw out some implicit lessons of that. So if you if, if that sounds interesting to you, then um, have a look at my Twitter, have a look at my writings on uh, Praxarchy and elsewhere. Mm. Have a look at the streams. I, I, I definitely think people should check out your articles on Praxarchy. I think uh, for me, reading them is, is some of the most informative uh, content I come across because it um, because of what you're saying you're not just bringing the the kind of championing the heroic spirit or character but you're then relating it to real historical examples and what what lessons we could draw on a political level from those so I, I definitely think those are worth um, consulting and uh, I, I should say as well I don't know if people know this but um, the very foundation of the English restoration series that we've been doing, Came from uh, your speech at the uh, the Witten Rupert because you were you were basically articulating many of these ideas uh, at uh, the Shielding Conference, uh, and uh, I think it was the first time that several of us in the audience had heard somebody say that in a modern context about restoration. And if I remember rightly, it got like uh, a number of people gave a standing ovation. It, and uh, mainly the English people in the audience, actually. Um, so that was the genesis. That was what planted the seeds in my brain for this. So uh, I have I have a lot to thank you for, Rupert, on that front. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you. Well, I'm going to um, wrap up with a poem that uh, somebody sent me. Uh, his name's Michael. He's uh, he's on Twitter, uh, and uh, it's based on the. Kind of his perceptions on Saint George, and I think I think there's many things within it which uh, relate to what we've been talking about. Um, but before I before I read it, let me just say thank you again to my three wonderful guests. Thank you to all of you who have been watching in the chat, and I wish everybody a very uh, happy Saint George's Day or what's left of it. Uh, so here here is uh, Michael's poem. In simpler days, we never dwelled on myths that we had heard. The tales of demons, ghouls, and orcs seemed patently absurd. For in our more enlightened time, we shunned what wasn't seen, denied that evil could exist, except in foolish dreams. But as the years, then decades passed, the land we knew had gone. One night the sun grew down for dusk, but never since has shone. We found ourselves in constant dark with demons all around, and overhead a dragon looms, his hiss a ceaseless sound. With demons we'd sworn to be false control controlling all our lives, and the dragon proving overhead that he still survives. We know now evil does exist, its rise has been achieved, but if the evil tales were true, what else must be believed? Now quiet corners have been formed where brave men come to tell the tale of England's patron saint which years of lies have quelled. The story told was of a man whose face was mired in pain, for he knew that the dragon slain would rise and rise again. So in his prayers he pled to God to summon forth a crowd, to watch him as he battled with the courage God allowed, in front of the befuddled befuddled mob, St. George raised up his shield. A Christian cross was painted red, his faith had been revealed. 
The peasants watched him as he plunged his lance into the dragon. And when the beast fell to the ground, they praised St. George's passion. But George, the storyteller told, refused their mindless praise. Instead, he said, be one with Christ and he will keep you safe. Then as St. George rode off upon his heaven-given horse, the crowd then knelt before the Lord and prayed to right their course. Lord, give us strength as we accept the faith that we must forge, and guide us as we draw upon the spirit of St. George. <laughs>